We are in session and we are back. And I hope you were with us from last week. We got part two of Hitler. I'm so tired. <laughs> it's a lot. I, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. It's a whole lot. We did a lot of research, like we said before. Uh, a lot of boards were made. A lot of notes were done. And I really could not do, couldn't even start to do any of this without my uh, my buddy, my co-host. He's a softball champion. Uh, he's got a golf game that I strive to get to. And it's not good. Sometimes he rhymes fast. Sometimes he rhymes slow. Um, he is Professor Chris. Salutations, everyone. Guten Tag. If anyone is uh, listening over in Germany on this. Um, if you are, just understand we're not talking about you when, when bad things oh, get said about yeah, Germany. Oh, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I mean, look, I'd look love where, to go see Germany. Yeah, exactly. Look where we are. I mean, we're not... I mean, we can throw stones at this a little bit more, but yeah. it's not like, you know, anyone's responsible for this right now. Um, Hitler. Man, where did we last... Where did we... Uh, on last week's episode of Adolf, uh, Hitler had been let out of jail after serving only 264 days out of a five-year sentence for treason. And now that he's back, he's got, um, you know, Adolf's got a brand new bag. He's going to try to go about this thing maneuvering through politics, but it's going to make it kind of difficult because along with the release comes a couple conditions. One of them being is that his precious Nazi party is now outlawed. Uh, another one being that he um, is not allowed to do public speaking. Yeah. So the two things that provided him, and from the court's perspective, this should have been it. These are two things, if they're going to let him out early, they're taking away his two weapons, the party that supports him and gives him type, some type of power, and then his ability to drum up support by not being able to do public speaking. Yeah, so um, strap in. Hopefully we can get this knocked out. It's only going to be two. I promise it's going to be two. It's not going to be a long two, hopefully. But uh, yeah, let's get rolling, see how he settles a new landscape. <laughs> about his plan essentially takes a hit when he first gets out because he's a dude that thrives in chaos. The only way that his party is able to gain power in what I want to do air quotes legitimately mm -hmm. is there has to be chaos occurring around him so much so that it makes extremist ideas not even look good, just look so different from what's causing all of the issues that people are like, fuck it. Why not give this a try to see if it could, fit? we can't get any worse. So and that's walks, what he's aiming for. He walks out into a world that has just absolutely fucked up that plan, too, because we have a little something called the Dawes Act that was enacted to sort of take the burden off of the reparations that were paid, and Germany gets better. Basically, what the Dawes Act was, it was a, I think it was a governmental... Um, it was uh, economic like stimulus provided by the United States to essentially help out with the hyperinflation that had been essentially since Hitler was put in prison has been just beating up essentially the country. 
And really, the only drawback to this was um, back in episode one when you were talking about how long the payments will go to Telltale tell about mm-hmm. 1984. That was all a part of the Dawes Act and kind of a following act that came after that. But pushing that can down the road had allowed Germany to be able to start rebuilding, kind of start changing, kind of start going back in the right Everything direction. Everything was heading in the right direction. Even more so, he came out, and in the meantime, Germany had joined the League of Nations. Which is a very big <clears throat> monkey wrench to a guy who just tried to take over and it failed. And, and not only that, but so the League of Nations is essentially the precursor to the United Nations. Think of it as the UN being formed after World War II. It was just formed during after World War I. And you have somebody that, even though that this is supposed to, you know, bring Germany into the international community and everything like that, help to contribute, what it does for Hitler is, and all these people that are these nationalists, is they see it as basically a giant betrayal. Basically saying, now you're putting us into bed with the people that have been making, not only that say that they were the victors in the Great War, when we still believe that we should have been the victors, but you're basically crawling into bed and cozying up with the people that have made our lives what we feel like hell for the last few years. At the same time, though, the the greater reach that he wanted to get from those people, the the middle class, the higher class, they're back to kind of living their lives in a good way again. So enable, or to really be able to reach them, mm-hmm. he's got to start changing these tactics. And as you had said earlier, um, he was banned from public speaking. The Nazi party was banned. Uh, January 4th, 1925, Hitler met with the Bavarian uh, prime minister, Heinrich Held, and he promised. He got on his, he probably didn't get on his hands and knees, but he's like, man, look me in the eyes when I tell you this. I'm going to use the democratic system this time. No more beer hall pooches for me. No more screwing the pooch. No more backroom deals. I'm not going to hold anybody hostage anymore. We're doing this legit. I'm going 100% legitimate. And I don't know if he had his fingers crossed or his toes crossed, but he really wanted to try to get this across. It must have worked because the ban on the Nazi party was lifted February 27th after meeting January 4th. Um, his no public speaking ban did go on a little bit longer. It went on another two years until 1927 before that was lifted. But at the same time, he was able to sweet talk his party back into being a legitimate source. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it kind of later in the year two in 25, Mein Kampf hasn't even come out at this point yet either. No. So he's not able to, you know, <clears throat> it wasn't like he did it in prison. He put it out while he was in prison. So he was staying in the public eye. It hasn't even come out at this point. And kind of the thought process, I'm wondering if when he went to essentially the, the head of Bavaria, what, what was the guy's name or what was his position? Heinrich Hild, the prime minister okay. of Bavaria. When he went to the prime minister, I wonder if the prime minister just kind of looked and said, you know, these guys aren't as big of a problem right now. But were I not to allow him to try to pursue through legitimate means, the government's going to eat him up and spit him out. Like he's never going to get elected because it's so extreme. But the other hand, so if I let it die out the natural way, the party's just going to disband. They're going to find out that they can't seek power this way. They know they can't seek power through the putsch or anything like that. So the party's going to disband and I'm not going to have to worry about this. And so I do think that was almost his – because he had no – other reason he could have just been like, yeah, you guys are banned. So maybe he just didn't want any type of like violent reprisals and everything because he had seen that they were willing to do that before. I mean, and, it's possible. It's also possible that he was just yet another person who was like, your ideas aren't the worst. That's 
I, like, yeah. There could have been sympathies towards that to kind certain, of... Certain ideas that he, they were on board with. Yeah. And so that kind of makes it tough to be able to hold their feet to the fire because if you really feel sort of the same way that they do and maybe not all the crazy things that he said weren't landing, like it's... I don't know. I, I don't think... The one thing that I do know is Hitler talking to him and being like, yeah, I'm going to use the democratic process. I bet that guy's like, sure. Yeah, you, gotcha. you go right. That's the thing, too, is we... Bet. I'm trying to think what the terminology we use, but all this was was just a series of, like, not checking him. Everyone was just like, okay. Like, no one saw it as a threat because in comparison as a whole, it was a smaller movement, even though, you know, they had, at this point, they felt like they were weak and they were on the way out because they didn't have their leadership. But Hitler was really running things from inside of prison as much as he could. But on the outside, basically the Nazi party on the outside was being led by Ludendorff. And at this point, Ludendorff and Hitler can't stand each other. No. Well, and a part of that, I'm sure, is because Ludendorff didn't get arrested and put in jail for the same shit that Hitler did. And, and Hitler didn't follow through on and made Ludendorff essentially. That's the whole point too, is when the putsch came out in national publications, it was like known widely as the Ludendorff putsch. So like, or like as the Ludendorff Hitler putsch. So Hitler didn't even get top billing on his own fucking putsch. No, but throughout the trial and the shit that he was saying Mm -hmm. about the putsch, people were like, okay, this was definitely Hitler's deal. Like he, he, this was, he was, he made it into his deal. Yeah. And then you have uh, one of the deputies, uh, Gregor Strasser, you kind of mentioned him, basically keeping you know the Nazi party alive, trying to expand it as much as he could. Um, he There were some differences in ideals between kind of the northern faction of the Nazi mm-hmm. party and the southern faction down in Munich, where like Hitler was and everything, is they started to kind of differ in their ideals, but were still essentially representing the Nazi party in their own way. Yeah, but... Gregor, his brother Otto, um, Joe Goebbels that you were talking about before, they really felt like since they were sort of doing the legwork up in the north where it was almost more important because they were growing it instead of just maintaining it. And that's where Berlin is, isn't it? So maybe I, they think it's more of a, a meaningful movement. It really could have been. They really butted heads on this because Gregor really felt like he was kind of becoming the centerpiece and... Just like we talked about with Hitler not wanting to link up with other factions that were other kind of extremist factions, he didn't like that. He didn't like somebody challenging his power. Well, here's the thing, too, is Goebbels at this point, too, was kind of on Strasser's side and thinks that it's a good idea to basically boot Hitler out, thinking he's too soft and, and they wanted to go and remove him. Part of me thinks that, like, the whole thing with Goebbels is he was just sucking up to whoever was in happened to have been in the most popular spot at that time. Fairweather and, fan. And he was just useful enough or had yeah. enough of a skill set and propaganda that like he was able to kind of move back and forth and there wasn't like a you know grievance against him or anything like that. Or he was just so fucking slimy that he kind of like was able to be like, no no no, I never said that. That wasn't my idea, dear Fuhrer, or whatever that bullshit was. He was uh Mac playing both sides of the fence when they were trying to figure mm-hmm. out the line of succession after Frank. And what they also did while while Hitler was in is they were able to kind of make the Nazi party a little more widely appealing. I think they toned down some of the rhetoric and everything that was more of the Hitler-centric rhetoric and were able to kind of try to bring in more people. But once Hitler came out and kind of reestablished his power base, Strasser just falls back in line. Well, for Hitler, one of these qualities that it's so tough to just give this guy credit for anything but he was such a gifted speaker that he would 
sort of like I said to you when we first started the studying, he was so much like a goddamn comedian working out material. Yeah. He would go up in front of crowds, and if he would get a big, loud, roaring cheer out of it, he'd be like, all right, we're going to keep that in. He would start going into something else. If those cheers started trailing off or if people started looking disinterested, he'd be like, all right, cut that. We're not going to do that. And he was able to go into these rooms where he could ramp up the anti-Semitism. He could tone down the anti-Semitism. They, they did that even in the sense of like their advertising. So they were saying that when they would go around and speak to, they were the the National Socialist German Workers' Party. So they were supposed to be nationalists. Socialist representing the German workers. And what they would do is they would emphasize different portions of their plan or ideal ideology. And so if they were speaking to the nationalists, when you would see signs, the N and the national would be bigger. If they were speaking to the workers, the worker part went on their advertisements and stuff would be bigger. If it was the socialist, you know, all that kind of shit. So they were doing like a psychological thing too. And, you know, this is just <clears throat> one of those things where he's like a, a master mass manipulator. Yeah. So he's able to essentially mold the crowd. And like you were saying, like his talent was in his, he didn't write speeches. What he would go is he would have an idea of what he was going to talk to. And as soon as he caught a reaction and a rise from the crowd, he then focused on that. And he's like, this is what, this is the, where I pull, this is the thread that I pull on this crowd. And then he would go work the next crowd and they wouldn't respond to that. And he'd pull this other thread and they would really respond to that. So he was <coughs> able to just essentially find exactly what would get him, you know, the biggest reaction and kind of focus on that. And th just the way that he was able to spin stuff to where everything was the fault of somebody else and, and bring, you know, bring the extremist ideology into almost like common conversation. Yeah. It, it was, you, he was blending it so much that it was like, he would get you with like 80% people would be cheering and then he would pepper in like the extremist shit. And then like, before you even had a chance to think about that, it was more of the shit that you agreed with. It'd be like, do you guys want more money? Yeah. Do you guys want more freedom? Mm. Do you guys not like the Jews? Do you uh -huh. guys not like being able to not make your house payments? Ah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, you got to give credit where credit's due. The man knew what he was doing. And as far as that goes, the Nazi party, I think, was benefited by a lot of people within the organization. Guys like Hoffman being able to take photos. Uh, guys like... Uh, Eckhart being able to open up the door to print and being able to print a Nazi newspaper. There were just people that were in these positions that were doing all sorts of shit that were making that popular. But the main draw, the one that put asses in seats was always going to be the speaker. Mm -hmm. Well, there was like a new year's party. I think it was going from 24 into 25 and during it, like, he was there, and I don't know if he had too much fucking sugar wine or whatever, <laughs> but he basically declared that he was going to turn Christ's words into deeds. I don't know which words he was fucking specifying, and he got, like, a new nickname called, like, the Redeemer, like, within the party and everything. So, like, it starts to really show you that this is becoming more, less of a political movement. And here's the other thing, too. I didn't realize this. The only reason that they had to put party... At the beginning is intent at the beginning, they had no intention of being a political party, but in order to exist as an entity like that and not like an extremist or a terrorist group, 
you had to pose as a political party. Yeah. So it, it had no political intention when it first started. And this, when he gets out of prison, is the only time that the idea of politics even comes into being. It just so happens that this is already a party that they can just simply shuffle over a little bit into the political arena. Well, and this technique was used pretty effectively before this. Um, throwing back to the first episode when we were talking about the invention of the SA. Mm-hmm. Did you catch how they registered their um, action group because they couldn't do it as an army? They had to be flexible. Yep. They had to register themselves as a gymnastics club mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to, to... Like, no one checked on that? Yeah. Like, I don't yeah. know if you're going in, around and checking, but you figure you should probably at one point... There should be, like, an inspector. Go find a fucking pommel horse. Do something. There should be, like, you know, a house has to be inspected. They're like, we're registering as a men's gymnastics team. At what point? Just like, you know, child social services type thing. Uh-huh. You show for a surprise yeah. visit, and yep. if you don't see these guys working on a set of rings or fucking uneven bars or doing something, and they're just sitting in a beer hall or something talking about how they fucking hate the Jews, maybe be like, hmm, I don't think this is a gymnastics group. Yeah, if they're outside ripping cigs, they're probably not in doing a, a floor routine. We're the stormtroopers because we just move into these gymnastics <laughs> competitions like a storm. But yeah, that that's that same sort of idea where they had to give themselves a label where there's... They tried to be a movement by force. They had to be a party by democratic standards because they had to kind of get that in their heads. And just after that New Year's that you were talking about when he became the Redeemer, he started believing in himself so much that when he would go out and give speeches, he would give speeches as if he already was the leader of the country. Mm -hmm. He would be out there saying shit like he'd be like, yeah, you know. Uh, as the leader of this movement, or I was forechosen by the Lord for this, like just getting really into that figurehead of what was going on mood mentality. It was like he was trying to speak it into existence almost. Well, and when he was first um, allowed to do, when the ban of, you know, the gag order from public speaking was lifted, he was only able to start speaking in like one area. Yeah. I think it was just in Bavaria. Saxony. So Saxony the was the first that? to lift the ban for public speaking, and then Bavaria after that. Okay. So he could only speak in those two places. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is this is where you could see how, you know, he's building his base. He's still doing all of this shit in secret. You know, the, the party isn't disbanded. The party is still essentially banned, technically. And then when is the actual party ban lifted? That was February 27th, right? Of 25, though. Okay. So it had been lifted for a while, and they were just trying to rebuild. Gotcha. As And that's because they were thinking they were going to go as a, pol- a legitimate political party at that point. Yeah. And so kind of with things against a new party trying to take power, with things going well, it was really an uphill battle before the day that Hitler just his wet dream came true and his wet dream, unfortunately is the issues that millions of people had all over the world. But, uh, black Thursday, August 24th, 1929, the stock market crash happens. The Dawes act, the second act that I'm forgetting the name of that. The first one was the doors act. Cause the, you, you said Dawes before. Too. Yeah. D-A-W-S Dawes. The first one was the Dawes, right? Or yeah. was the doors act. The first one, I think the, fir- the first one, I, 99% sure it was the Dawes Act. Okay. But the second act that happened, both of these two things that had just completely saved their asses and brought it back, 
all of that money was gone because as soon as the stock market crashed, there's happened, no more aid. Yeah, there's, there's no a, more aid to come in. Mm-hmm. So you immediately, and not to mention that we're talking 1920. What is it? 1929. Mm-hmm. World commerce and world trade was already a thing. Yeah, like it, it was happening at a much faster rate. So there was money that was tied up overseas. There were stock markets where you could trade in Berlin it American was no, stocks. It, it was, was. It wasn't isolated. Yeah. Finance was worldwide. Finance wasn't just isolated within just certain countries. It, it could be in some places, but when you had international trade and there was shipping and all that kind of stuff, like there was at this time, yeah, you had money tied up where the the effects of the stock market crash in America, we only hear about what happened in America because we're here and this is where we learn about the stuff, but it had effects worldwide. I think we talked about that a couple episodes ago and I'm excited to do a great depression episode mm-hmm. kind of jumping back real quick before the, the and i know you want to kind of group this in together too but just to kind of paint a picture also about you know we don't hitler doesn't need any help being <laughs> fucking pointed out as a psychopath but let's go ahead and just make sure we know how much of a creep this guy is too so during the summer of 1926 um hitler is visiting a place in bavaria called um Birch's garden and it's in the ober salzburg so it's essentially in the the bavarian alps so he's 37 and while he's vacationing here, he's running a house, um, and I want to. I'm trying to remember what he calls it. It is called the Bergdorf. Yes, Bergdorf. Yep, it's called the Bergdorf. He rents it, and um, it's in the Ober Salzburg. He moves his sister in uh, eventually, and everything. Half sister. His half sister, and eventually, but while he's renting it, this is like his second or third summer here. Back in 26, he meets a girl named Mitzi. And she is 16, and they, and he is 37, by the way. He takes a, a shine to this girl and during, you know, goes around with her, goes to dinner with her while he's here and everything. But then at one point says, like, she says they were out walking and he pushed her up against a tree and kissed her passionately and she had never wanted anybody more or anything like that. And basically, like, her sister, I think, is a little bit older than her. And is like, get away from this guy. Like, he introduces himself not even as Hitler, but he uses the alias Mr. Wolf, which is something that he'll use essentially. Not only Mr. Wolf, but, like, he goes by the wolf. That's, like, his thing. I I wonder about that. What do you think that is that makes him want to be, like, an apex predator? What do you think it is about wolf? Do you think it's just, like, a... It's Yeah, it's some type of just, like... Uh, you don't think there's symbolism behind it? No, no, I think there is because, you know, it's a powerful animal and everything like that. There's yeah. an alpha within a wolf pack. He's, you know, comparing other Germans to essentially a pack. It, you know, wolves are essentially supposed to be a strong animal. He, one of his bunkers, the one that he designs on the eastern front to oversee the Russian uh, thing, is called the Wolf Slayer. And it's fucking, okay. that's bonkers in itself. But, yeah, I think it's just something, it's supposed to be powerful, somewhat frightening. But yeah, so he's he's fooling around on vacation with this sixteen year old. So you mentioned how old he was, right? Thirty seven. Yep. So and this is gonna be a pattern. This isn't just an isolated incident. This will be a pattern going forward for for Hitler's life about he's uh it's a Wooderson thing. You know what I like about these German girls or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> they I keep getting, getting older, older they, they stay the same, same age. age. Well, the other thing too is the the wolf thing kind of went along with that. So it's almost weird that like he was a predator in a sense because he was going after sixteen and seventeen-year-olds, mm-hmm. calling himself the wolf. Like, is it, was that a? Uh, it's maybe not well thought of the way yeah. he actually thought about that. Um, but yeah, so getting back to the stock market crash again, 
this party thrives oh. in chaos and it needs chaos to survive and to grow. Yeah, before we talk about that, uh, Mitzi was so enthralled by him that they ended up hooking up later. And While she was married. Yeah. Um, she was trying to talk him into leaving uh, a future woman in his life, Ava Brown, that we'll talk about at length probably. Um, he said that he was willing to leave her. She said she wanted marriage to Adolf. Adolf said no. She went home and used a piece of... I think it was um, clothesline, uh-huh. tied it around a doorknob using it and tried to hang herself because she couldn't have Adolf. Luckily, she was found. She didn't die. But that was just kind of the hold that he had on these younger women somehow that he was able to get them to just... Uh, if, fanaticism. Yeah, dude. It's something that I just don't... And it would be one thing if that was like an isolated incident. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the other incidences. There were... It's a pattern. It's a fucking pattern. Here's the thing, too, crazy. I was going to wait till later to get to this. So once the Nazis actually took power, words that had negative connotations, they actually changed the German meaning of those Mm -hmm. words. So fanatic, instead of being a negative, fanaticism and fanatic became something that was like the highest compliment that you could call like a Nazi. So just crazy shit like that. So we'll go back a little bit. Um, Yeah, uh, back to the... uh, The the stock market crash. uh So... Essentially, it just destroys the the you know recovering German economy, and the Nazi Party just jumps at the chance to help out the lower middle classes. They go and hand out food, help out with bread lines, all this kind of stuff yeah. that are ingratiating themselves with the public is the party of the people. And in May 1928 to September 1930, the they start actually putting themselves up for election in like local politics and everything in just massive numbers. And they're able to essentially during, it was the first time that they really entered in the elections, right? Uh, the first time they really won any sort of like measurable seats was 1928 in May. They garnered 2% of the vote and that got them, I believe it was like 13 seats. And they were pretty stoked about that. Like 12. So it looks like 12 members out of 491 okay. in what's called the Reichstag. The Reichstag is essentially parliament. It's their House of Representatives. Yep. It's their Congress. And so you have, uh, at that point, you had like Social Democrats, which were like center left, had like a 30% vote share. And that actually like increased. But you have this new extremist wing that's already got 2.6% really in one of like their first or second cracks at trying to get in there. They got like 800,000 votes out of a possible 31 million votes. And one of the things too that as they're, starting to go ahead and put themselves up for legitimate office is they create what's called the Schuhstaffen. Schuhstaffen. The Schuhstaffen. The SS. They create the SS. And the SS is created essentially as, you can already kind of call the SA like a paramilitary wing. It's essentially the elite paramilitary wing that's created as like the personal bodyguards of Hitler. And you have a guy come into the picture, um, that starts out just kind of as a lower tier SS officer name. And he's going to be very big within essentially the, the Nazi party later on called Heinrich Himmler. So much alliteration in the German naming. Mm-hmm. A lot of Heinrich, a lot of Heinrich Hoffman's, uh, Hofstanger, just all that. A lot of H's mm-hmm. too. So at this point too, there is a little bit of kind of like dissension, there's always seems to be a little bit of infighting within like the Nazi party. And it always seems to be, you know, 
in this scenario, it's Strasser. He kind of comes into the picture and he's kind of butting heads with Hitler a little bit. And I well, think this they, is, I think, that north-south divide again. Yeah, exactly. Rearing its ugly head. They have they have ideas about how they should go about things and maybe differences in ideology. So they're each trying to push those as the dominant platform for the Nazi party. And so Hitler ends up meeting with Strasser at some point. They come to an agreement. And then after that, I think Strasser ends up getting in a car accident or something. And so he's kind of out of commission for six months. And that's when I think Hitler just kind of comes in and shores up his his power base and reestablishes himself finally being out of like jail and everything like that as the, the true dictator, the Fuhrer of the, of the Nazi party. Yeah. And all, I mean, all that work that they were doing on middle-class families is bread lines and everything else that you were talking about. It paid such big dividends because you go from May 28th getting, or May 1928 getting 2.6% of the vote September 1930 gets 18.3% of the vote. Mm-hmm. They jumped all the way up to a, uh, 107 seats in the Reichstag. It, they had become basically the second largest party in parliament as far as like a sole party. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the ways that these um, parties would work to reach the 50% threshold is they would have to create coalitions mm-hmm. with other groups that are Across close. the aisle, except yeah. instead of an aisle... You had essentially like an octagon, yeah, divided up, and you had different aisles and different factions and everything. So and what what really led to that increase of them being able to jump up like that? So, like you said, you had them helping out with the recovery. It, it was like a perception of helping out. They really didn't have any power, but they yeah. were making these promises, and they were always like vague promises and everything like that. But they just sounded good. It was it was lip service. It, it was shit. Like Hitler would go out and he'd be like, "We're gonna fix the trade unions." He doesn't say how he's going to fix them. He doesn't mm-hmm. say who's going to benefit. He just puts certain subjects into certain things and says that they're going to do anything. He promises everything with promising nothing at the same time. Exactly. You have German unemployment at this point that's up to like 40%. Um, during like 29 to 32, the industrial production falls by 50% in Germany. So they're just getting hammered. They're, they're losing money, jobs, all that kind of stuff. He tones down the anti-Semitism to kind of appear more professional and conservative. Strasser eventually is brought back into the party and between like 29 and 32, the party members of this are about at 130,000 plus. And that's, that's just, that's just members. Yeah. That's not people that like, if you're really thinking about it, when you hear that, they're like, well, that's still only 130,000. How are they getting so many votes? Those are just people that are willing to actually put pen to paper to become members of this party. To register, yeah. To register, and that are accepted, because at this point, too, there's qualifications to get into this party. You have to meet certain physical requirements. You have to meet a certain lineage-type requirement. They're just not accepting anybody. They want a certain type of person. White guy. Exactly. And then you have people that are kind of maybe on the fence, like, hey, I'll vote for those guys, but eh, I'm not going to be like a card-carrying party member. So that's where they're able to kind of build up more of a, of a following as well. This... Uh, they create a, like a youth outreach program, which is going to be called the Hitler Youth. Yeah. They establish a base in Munich called the Brown House or Brown Haas, the Brown Haas. And this basically serves as essentially, you know, Hitler's office and kind of where they're making all their plans from. They do this in, um, in Munich because they're still not, you know, they're still building their power base. They're still in a more nationalist centric place and not really ready to move to Berlin where their power base is going to be a little bit weakened. Weird thing that I found, um, speaking of the Brown House, uh, did you know that the only property that Hitler ever actually owned was the house in the Berghof? Yeah. Everything else was just rented. Mm-hmm. 
You would think that somebody that or was... Or owned by the Nazi party. Yeah. But, like, not... They, yeah, his only residence was the... Was the Berghof. You're the leader of Germany. You're the leader of the Nazi party, and you only have one piece of land. He never name. needed to own, like, the royal... I don't even what they call it, the chancellery. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you own the entire country, you just kind of own everything. Yeah, you're not you, so, You're not concerned with what your the fucking ownership and the yeah, mortgage papers fucking say. I just thought that it was odd that that was, like, the one thing that he had to his name. While he's um, set up shack at the, the Brown House, this is when he starts making everybody refer to him as the Fuhrer. Um, this and is, they would all greet people in the... This is where we get Heil Hitler from. <laughs> yeah, it, it became essentially just like a greeting. What essentially starts out is something that they say is like a pledge of allegiance to each other will eventually become almost like a litmus test for your loyalty. So like when the Gestapo and the SS are kind of running security all over Germany, if someone says Heil Hitler and you don't hear that response back from somebody, your eyes are immediately on you. For, yeah, for treason or dissension. So it almost becomes like a fucking test. They said the other test of the your Nazidom was the salute mm-hmm. that you would do where you'd pull your hand to your chest and fire it out like you're half confident in a question you're about to answer. When when I was okay, so I get that it's the whenever anyone like it's the arm at like forty five degrees pointed yeah. right in front of you. But all of the videos, it's the laziest fucking... They just have it up. Uh, it looks like he's just holding his hand up, like, doing the prom wave, except holding it straight. Or it's, like, tilted back. And there's not, like... He wouldn't even do it. He was so he physically was like, hey. awkward that he couldn't even figure out how to get it done right. Like, the... the You know, the, it's supposed to be the intention of pointing the arm out and being, like, Heil Hitler and all that kind of shit. But at the same time, like, his, if it had to have a voice, it would be like, hey, Hitler. Yeah. Like, that was... It was very soft. Yeah, that's what he was. He was a limp-wristed like. man. He probably fucking had to do it so much. He's just like, I can only do this now. My well, fucking rotator cuff is destroyed. This is where we get the real dictator shit, because much like Kim Jong-un shoots, like, 18 holes in one mm-hmm. when he plays 18 holes... Um, Hitler was supposed to be the most ardent Nazi because he could do the salute for longer than anybody else. Like seven hours. Yeah. It it was a very long period of time. And that was how you were supposed to show your devotion to the party. What happened? They were in the fucking brown house and they came and everyone was chanting. They're like, like, Adolf's going, he's on six and a half hours. (laughs) I don't know how much longer he can stand. He's just sweating with a water bottle, just trying to salute away. But like in his personal life apparently he was extremely unprofessional yeah he was late for everything he slept in like way in he wasn't he was like Marilyn Monroe he wasn't concerned <laughs> about like he was concerned about his appearance and everything like that um but like socially just not like a, a professional person or anything you uh, heard about <clears throat> the uh potential meeting between him and Churchill at dinner yeah, and he, like, kept him, like, he slept through it, or, like, fucking the guy had to go wake him up, and then he wasn't even dressed. Yeah, he didn't have his hair done, he looked all fat. He didn't he even wasn't go, right? To, yeah, he didn't even go. Yeah, he, it was the one time that he had a chance to meet Churchill before the rubber hit the road, and he showed him up. Just a real dickhead. At, at the same time, uh, there was this guy, he was a German, um, like, law student, or lawyer, his name was Horst Vessel. And there was a situation where he was living in um, somewhere in Germany. I don't know if it was Munich or not, but his landlady, apparently he had been laid on some payments and his landlady had hired these basically communist enforcers to try to like scare him out or, or force him out. And one thing led to another during this altercation and he shot by these communists and he's not killed right away, but he's mortally wounded in the time it takes for him to actually die in the hospital Goebbels actually fucking sees this 
and develops essentially a story around this, that this is the pride of the German future, that this is a prime example of like, of, you know, youth taken too soon by the communist and basically takes like an old German, like hymn or like folk song and designs this song to that beat about like horse vessel and like the youth of Germany and all this. And it's called like the raise the flag song. And basically comes like becomes like the fucking anthem yeah. for the fucking Nazi party. You also like you're saying you get the Nazi salute that's invented. Um, there's fucking like at this point too during this three years, there's like six thousand Nazi meetings throughout the fucking country. He's making his way in, and really, I think. Do you have anything else before the presidency? Yeah. So, okay. <clears throat> I I was mentioning it before, but. At this point, they really start to push this now that, like, there's an economic collapse again because, you know, it recovered before due to the Dawes Act and everything like that. They really lean into essentially now that, see, we've told you, there might have been a little recovery, but this current regime, the way things are going right now, it's not going to change. We can't make small changes and expect anything to work out. We need large, extreme changes. And he keeps pushing this. Another huge thing that helps him, the fucking Kaiser you still have Kaiser Wilhelm, who's no longer in power, of course, because they lost World War One. He's but like he's, outside the country, too. Yeah, isn't he's he? in exile somewhere, but someplace that's accessible. Yeah. What ends up happening is Kaiser Wilhelm's son pledges his allegiance to the Nazi Party. So now you have these people that were still wanting the monarchy to be reestablished and everything. That's like, oh shit! Like his son is now like putting in his like throwing in his law with the Nazis. It it leads just that name recognition. Like we have Wilhelm, you know the Kaiser's son with us and everything that all contributes essentially to them. Like you were saying, September 14th, 1930, 6.4 million votes, 18% of the total, 107 seats. The second biggest party now in the Reichstag. It's a rise. That's really kind of tough to understand, but the amount of work that they were putting into it. And like you said earlier, being on the cutting edge of all of the different forms of media that you can get out to people, you see why that's such a big driver today. Because even back then, when your newest form of media might have been TV, to be able to get that shit rolling, to be able to go out there, to do basically like countrywide tours delivering these Mm -hmm. speeches every single day, day in and day out, it yielded from 2.6% of the vote to 183 just doing that work. In the course of like three years. Yeah, it's just absolutely incredible. The first day that the new Reichstag went into session or whatever they call it, the fucking essay went out and were like, went on like a, like damaging like Jewish yeah. shops and all this stuff. They were disguised, but like that was their fucking celebration for like the entry into like the Reichstag. They were also told that they weren't allowed to wear their Nazi dress into the Reichstag to do the votes or to do anything like that. And of course, all of them showed up in their Nazi uniforms. Mm-hmm. And I believe they did start out during roll call instead of just saying they here would say or here. here. They would say here and then. Heil. Yeah, Heil. And Just, they they were told, you know, to tone it down to the point where they could be contributing members because what they were basically trying to do, the Reichstag kind of operated um, kind of like Congress, but in different ways. You had people that could be assigned to, like, governorships. From the Reichstag, you had a position that was like the Speaker of the House, the President of the Reichstag. Party so leaders, you, yeah. You had political appointments that could be made, and so in order for them not to just be these token members of the Reichstag with only these, like, smaller powers – 
they were basically trying to also get into these positions of governorship to make themselves be candidates for it. So at this point, the SA membership is up to a fucking million. That's in the SA membership. There's only 100,000 Germans in the army. So at this point, just this like personal militia, this paramilitary group outnumbers the military 10 to 1. Not to mention the actual military doesn't have any sort of supremacy in the air or in the waters or yeah, exactly. anything like that. Well, I mean, you don't have that either, but that's the whole point. You're that's, on yeah, even that's footing. what I mean. It's just ground to ground. Like, you can't have a plane drop a bomb on a bunch of SA guys mm-hmm. because you don't have planes and you don't have bombs. So our good buddy Rom, apparently he had uh, fled the country and was over in South America helping train, like, military troops and stuff like that. They I ended think- up bringing him back in. He and... Crazily enough, Rom is not only gay, but he's openly gay. And this seems to just fly in the face of essentially everything that the Nazi party seems to stand for. It's one of those 24 tenants or whatever you were talking Mm -hmm. about that the party was set on. So, like, he ends up coming back in to kind of help oversee the SA and everything. And I think Goebbels um, has Himmler start to build, like, a dossier on Rom for, like, blackmail. And basically, I think he... I'm pretty sure this is something he probably always did, was Goebbels was just trying to get dirt on everybody to be able to turn Hitler or be able to sell out anyone at any given time. Well, and I think Himmler didn't like Rom because it was almost like he was... <sighs> the SA was like the SS's mm-hmm. little brother, so Himmler probably wasn't a big fan of the leader of the SA. The guy that he gets to kind of like start spying and build the dossier on Rom is a guy named Reinhard Heydrich. And this dude is going to be a major player coming um, when we actually do more of like the Holocaust episode and everything like that. He ends up being like one of the the chief architects of the final solution. So these guys are in it early on. Yeah. And that's the other thing I always kind of wondered, like when you're looking at, you know, just about the World War II aspect, once the war started, you have all these people in positions of power. And you're like, how did he like find these people that were so like, so fucking disgustingly like minded like him? He had known them. They were there from, like, the get-go, or they came in at different times, and they were there from, like, the building of it. Yeah, and they all had dirt on their hands by the time they were in these major positions of Mm -hmm. power during World War II. Well, and, you know, sometime during this, after he's kind of, you know, they get some people in the party, he ends up, what we kind of referred to either, as he's bought the um, Berghof, he ends up buying it, moving his sister in, and or his half sister, and she has Angela, huh? Angela, Angela. Well, she has a daughter, and her name is is it Gilly? Gilly Robble. Gilly Robble, and she is twenty years old, and she just loves hanging out with Uncle Adolf. I thought they the first just, time they had met, she was sixteen. The first time they had met, yeah, she was sixteen. But when they actually move in and everything, she's twenty. Oh, okay. That's a. <sighs> I don't, I don't know, know if this man. information, who knows if this information no, I, is coming from... Not that information, just like the fact that he had seen her, he had kind of laid eyes on her and played that long game between 16 to 20 where it's like, I need to get this chick in my house, A, because I've taken a liking to her, but B, because I've taken a liking to her and she is my niece, I have to try to keep this under wraps. Mm-hmm. Even he was smart enough to realize that him fucking a family member was probably going to look bad. Yeah. And so, I mean, they, they do a lot of stuff together. They're never seen having a romantic relationship, but they hang out enough together with a fucking 
we'll just say between 16 and 20 year old girl and a guy who's in his forties probably at this point. Yeah. And it, yeah, it doesn't fucking, here's the thing that makes me suspect that it's not just a normal <laughs> uncle niece relationship is around the time, you know, after the election, everything like that, while they're still building up their power base, they got some seats, 107 seats. He meets through Heinrich Hoffman, his photographer. He goes down to visit her or him at his shop or whatever it is. And he sees a young woman, Miss Ava Brown. He catches her, her stems in her ass first. She's standing she's, up on a ladder putting yep. some stuff away. And he's like, oh, this is Mr. Wolf. What is that? Yeah, exactly. And he's like, oh, dear, that's our good little Fraulein. You know, Ava, have you met, you know, Mr. Wolf? And they do a fucking introduction. Well, he starts hanging out with Ava. And apparently... Because the relationship is so normal between Gelly and Adolf, <laughs> uh, Gelly turns around and fucking kills herself with Adolf's pistol when yeah. she's twenty three years old. So, I think that's pretty telling of what the fucking relationship entailed. Yeah, Adolf. Well, and this is where things get kind of really pear shaped. Is Adolf is off doing his thing? He's off doing his speaking tour. He's out there talking to the people. Uh, Gelly in his home was going through his stuff and found a note in one of his, um, jacket pockets. Mm -hmm. There was a note asking Ava to go to the theater with him. And she was so distraught over it that she tore through his things and found his pistol. Mr. Hoffman, would you pass the note to uh, Miss Brown? <laughs> yeah. To see if she would go out on a date. And that's part of that social awkwardness, I think. Like, why would you be writing a 16-year-old girl a note, dude? Just just ask her. You're old enough. It's cool. Oh, yeah. Ava is like 16 at this yeah, point. Yeah, she's we 16 that? Or I feel 17. like we've said 16 a lot for yeah. all these girls that I can't remember if we described. Just it's assume kind of that if we're talking about a young girl, she's like around the age of 16. Yep. If not 16, exactly. So, yeah, she steals his uh, pistol, runs into her room, jams the door shut. The help in the house is knocking on the door like, hey, hey, what are you doing? What do you got going on? Apparently, they never hear a gunshot. Yeah, they hear like something drop and it sounds like a book hits the ground or some shit. And then next day they show up. She still hasn't left the room. They force their way in with not with the police or anybody logically that you would think. But I think it was like Himmler or somebody who mm -hmm. was actually over there, too, that forces their way in. She had shot herself in the chest. Uh, there's debate. There was some fingers pointed that it could have been Hitler that did it. There were some fingers pointed that it could have been somebody in the SS that did it just to try to... Clear loose end. Yeah. Try to tie it up, like you say, and kind of clear the way for Ava, probably because Ava was be somebody that was more digestible than his niece mm -hmm. to the public. But yeah, that's uh, we have a an attempt from Mitzi to kill herself. And now we have one under the belt just because they were so infatuated with this man, her uncle. It's just absolutely incredible to me that he had that kind of a draw and that he was that much of a weirdo. Also something that we forgot to mention um, from Landsberg prison was he, this was only found. I don't know how it wasn't mentioned and maybe it wasn't because they didn't, do the physical, like they didn't release the physicals for the army. Mm -hmm. But uh, when they were going through Landsberg and he was getting his physical to go into prison, they found out that he had an undescended testicle. One testicle confirmed. <laughs> yep. So uh, officially confirmed. He, he um, had both of I'm them. I'm just going to throw this out from last episode. A lot of people in the world with undescended testicles, no one else has done this. Yep. Yeah. Still, still, still following that same pattern. 
Uh, I don't want anybody listening who may have an undescended testicle to really feel like this is a shot at you. This isn't your spokesman. We know no. that this isn't yeah. the, not, the not spokesman the for, your, for people with your condition. I will say, though, um, anybody that does, bravo to you, because he, I don't think, took it very well. Mm-mm. He would, like, refuse to be seen in public not dressed to the nines. Like the most that anybody said they ever saw was his knees because of his fucking leader. Did you see the fucking picture? It was like someone trying to look tough. So you have it from like, you know, Hitler from the waist up and he's got his brown shirt or it might've been a black one tucked in. He's got the fucking leather strap across his chest. He's trying to arm band on. And then it like pans out and he's fucking wearing lederhosen, the short shirts, the shorts that go down, like the brown ones yeah. that go down above his knees. Then you just see his kneecaps and then the fucking like tall white socks. I'm just like, that's the most unthreatening <laughs> fucking uniform like I've ever seen in my life. It it was it looked like a fucking Halloween person <laughs> trying to fucking him. hit yes. It was fucking ridiculous. But yeah, the the one nutted man that may have not had enough self confidence. That could have been a driver, the fact that he had one testicle. He was definitely the kid that <coughs> Did PE and then just didn't shower after class. Like just a a very weird dude when it came. To, <coughs> excuse me to that. Maybe it's because he only had one nut. So um, something that might not be common knowledge. So there's a couple different chants. There's the it's the greeting, the Heil Hitler, the sign off, and then there's the Zieg Heil. And Zieg Heil, do you know where that came from? Uh, so this no. is our this is your Putschi guy because oh. he went to Harvard. The chant is Harvard. Oh, that's Harvard. right. Yeah. So he used that Zieg Heil, Zieg Heil, and was fucking and used the Harvard chant to fucking come up with that. So fucking sorry, Harvard. That's that's an L, Harvard. <laughs> sorry, you don't take many of them, but that's that's definitely an L. Um, we get some other just weirdly shocking things that I don't know why they're not more common knowledge. Probably because there's a lot of companies that have ties back to this, but. You get Hugo Boss designs the Nazi SS uniforms, the fucking jackboots, the black, the skull, the death head emblem and all that kind of stuff. The fucking SS logo. You get fucking Hugo Boss is who fucking designs these. I used to wear fucking Hugo Boss <laughs> cologne a long time ago, and now I'm I'm having weird conflicting feelings about that shit. And he's still designing. Like, I'm trying to remember the last time, you know, where, like, people are going to an award show or, like, yeah. Oscars. Like, who are you wearing? I'm trying to remember in my head if I've ever heard any of these motherfuckers say I'm wearing Hugo Boss because I know it's happened. Well, and you have to think, too, when the Olympics roll around and we have, like, Polo that does ours. Mm-hmm. You think anybody in Germany is ever, like, Hugo Boss? And they're like, what the fuck did you just say? No, I, no, it's, Hugo. It's still a national. Yeah, it's, it's still, still international. Fashion, co- yes. it's, it's the thing. And um, part of that that you're talking about, the reason that Hugo designed those uniforms that he did specifically for Hitler was for some reason he felt that the chancellery was just a little bit too far outside of his realm. But the presidency wasn't. And the presidency at the time was held by, I think his name was Paul von Hindenburg. Is that right? Yeah. So, oh, Carl. Carl von Carl Hindenburg, Hindenburg, of course, Hindenburg Carl had Decay. been, yep, he had been elected in February of 1925. Thank you for making me go back to that because I forgot. So yeah, so the guy that's been elected as the president of um, the Weimar Republic is Carl von Hindenburg. And, and von Hindenburg is, I would say he's a lax guy. He doesn't really seem like a, he's an older gentleman. Um, 1932 sees him come up for the president. the Hindenburg is named after Carl von Hindenburg. That was going to be my question to you. 
Yeah, we'll just go. The, yeah, it, it it's has, too it's too close. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, the man had a blimp named after him that exploded. So sort of not like the intention. What, I don't what's going to happen here? But his number comes up for uh, re. I don't know. They seem to have a lot of elections. There's well, certain things that cause elections, then they have ones that are scheduled. It's very weird. Yeah. So what happens is there is an article written in the Weimar Republic's Constitution, and we'll talk about it a little later. I want to say it's Article 48, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, when Article 48 is invoked, it actually takes the power away from the um, parliament and gives sole power in emergency situations to the president. Chancellor. They're the chancellor. So yes, thank you. The, the structure real quick. You have a president. Yep. You have a chancellor. Yep. You then have the people in the Reichstag, and you have different positions within that. The chancellor is usually chosen by the party in power in majority of Correct. the Reichstag. But the president has the authority to remove the chancellor at any time. Yep. So the chancellor is still behooven to the president, but the chancellor is in charge of the Reichstag. And the, and the running of the day-to-day and everything like that. Yeah, it, it's almost a situation where the president is the highest rank, but it's almost like the chancellor is the stronger it's like of the, the pr- two. Yes, it's like the president is only job is to watch the chancellor. Yep. And the chancellor is supposed to do everything else. So it's like it's an observer, observatory sort of. position with the power to remove that person. Yeah, and it just becomes a situation where whenever that happens... In order to come back into session, they have to have just basically because him stripping the power away from the parliament mm-hmm. basically calls their jobs into question. Where when they go back into parliamentary sessions, they mm-hmm. have to have um, elections for basically like the people saying we want these people in power in the new legislative session. Mm-hmm. So it's like our elections, but they can be spurred any time as this article goes along. Gotcha. Okay. So that's why they're having, that's why we have elections that are happening like every year, every two years. The uh, presidency is, I believe it's six years, maybe seven years. And the chancellor is in appointed position. So it can change literally at any time. Or it can go on forever, yes. which it ends up happening. But, uh, Von Hindenburg's coming up in 1932 on his next election, and they said that at the fulfillment of his, if he wins again, his fulfillment date, he'll be 92 years mm-hmm. old. So he is older than dirt. He's he's seen this all this time shit. too. Yeah, you're nine. Like so, what's 92 like in 1930? <laughs> it can't be good. Or 1932. Be like the fact that you made it to 92, you got to be just like ravaged as fuck yeah dude you gotta be really really tired um so hitler for some reason has never really thought about this presidency thing von hindenburg is on the right he is um so the reason that hitler also can't go for the chancellor position at this point is because he they are the second biggest party you have oh. to be able to qualify for it. I think you have to be part of the largest party. You have to, to be, be part of the majority. To be eligible yep. to run for the chancellor or to be elected to the chancellor or picked or whatever. Yeah. So he gets this idea, hey, maybe I go president first, then I can maybe work my way into that chancellorship. Uh, one big thing stands in his way, though. You have to be a citizen of the country that you're running for president in, mm-hmm. and he is not a German citizen. He shouldn't even be the leader of the of the political party at this point because no. he's not a citizen, and it's a German political party. Uh, and at this point, he renounced his Austrian citizenship in 1925. So he's been without citizenship for seven years. Mm-hmm. 
in order to tie up that loose end, February 25th, 1932, Hitler's appointed as the administrator of the state's delegation to the Reichstag in Berlin. Excuse me, so the little section that he was appointed to, since he became a member of that um, area, mm-hmm. he was given citizenship in that area, so then he could take this position. Okay. So that's how he gets his German citizenship. They're just opening doors and yeah. finding excuses to let him do this shit. And I know that it's like he has the single party, the Nazi party doesn't have, they're the second largest. There's other nationalist parties. They may be smaller. Like when they first started on, they only had like what, 12 seats. Mm-hmm. You have these other smaller nationalist parties that can be in there as well. And just for the strength in numbers, if they need to get something done, and it matches 50% of what the other Nationalist Party wants, they're going to try to get that pushed through. So they'll team up and, like you said, make coalitions to create larger, the majority parties. Well, being such a big party at this point, too, Hitler is okay with working with other coalitions, really, because or with other places to make coalitions with other radical groups. Until he can gain, because he can't yeah. gain that power himself. So he's he's taking what he can get. Well, and he, he knows that there's nobody in those smaller parties that's going to be able to challenge him at all. Yes. He's still King Dick. He's King of the Mountain in the, the second largest party. Um, so yeah, he decides to run for presidency, or run for the presidency. And it's very sort of odd, some of the things just with what they call themselves, the People's National... National Socialist German Workers' Party. Yeah, you would think something called the Workers' Party, you would be really focused on workers' rights. Um, He goes and meets with these German industrialists about a few other things not really pertaining to the presidency. And towards the end of the meeting, as he's talking to them, he just kind of throws it out there. He's like, so if I were to run for president, would I have your support? And they're like, ugh. We like von Hindenburg. You and von Hindenburg are technically from the same side of the aisle. You're just a little bit more extreme mm-hmm. than he is. We got some good shit going with him. I think we would probably be... It doesn't benefit enough yeah. us enough. It's not like he's from the opposing party to where they're fighting against his policies. They're like, he's already doing a lot for us. We're used to this. It's a known quantity. And frankly, you're probably still a little bit crazy yeah. for us. But you have companies that are like fucking Bosch. Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Siemens. They're the most thing I know them for is they're on the front of some soccer jersey. Isn't it spelled S I E M E N S? Maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't want to go S E M E N on the board. I I see where you were trying to avoid that. (laughs) I I I took a different uh, stroke at it. But these people of all these major industries, these companies that are still around today, he goes, Well, what if we were able to maybe work on the trade laws or maybe just go ahead and abolish the, the not the trade laws, the um, employees. Unions. Yeah, employee unions. Mm-hmm. Trade unions. And everybody's like, oh, shit, if you destroy the trade unions, then we can start giving people a shitload less money and mm-hmm. nothing's going to go it's, wrong. It's all of our benefit. Yeah. So he gets these major industrial corporations to sign on, on to the, the On the quiet. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. But they're they're going to start giving them money. He's going to have that political power on them. These companies that are still around today, I can't. We cannot stress enough how many companies were involved with Hitler that just it gets swept under mm-hmm. the rug. But along with that, all the shit that you were talking about, all the mass marketing campaigns, everything that's going on, the shit that they're pulling off on this whole entire just whirlwind tour of a a uh, campaign. Oh, um, Hitler had met von Hindenburg at another time and they were kind of having a meeting about maybe Hitler's political aspirations. 
and Von Hindenburg just completely shut him down, and that was when he called him the corporal. He mm-hmm. also told him to his face that the highest achieving rank that he would ever achieve in the, or the highest rank that he would ever achieve in the government would be the leader of the post office. Oh, that's right. Postmaster General or some shit. Like, yeah, yeah just like the biggest called. slap in the face ever. So this gives Hitler an axe to grind. It was a, it was a personal Hitler. vendetta at that yeah. point. Um, a lot of the things that they were doing on the streets, they would actually record albums of Hitler's speeches. They would hand them out to people for free. And then back in the day, you've heard of um, the baseball cards, the T206s, the ones that they used to put in tobacco. Yes, to, in order to give it structure, mm-hmm. but they were like collectible playing cards to get kids to actually chew. Well, yeah, maybe that. Yeah, maybe just like another hobby because yeah, it, it would the be pack, like it gives the pack its rigidity. Couldn't just be a fucking piece of cardboard back there. They did it in bubble gum. Okay, too. okay. But they would basically have like Nazi trading cards, mm-hmm. and on these albums that they were giving out for free to the people, it would be these boards where you could actually brooches slide that these women could cards. wear. Yeah. It was like it was merch. It was fucking Nazi merch. Just crazy ways for them to be able to Things that people weren't doing at this point. That's why it was like so weirdly effective. It was just like this weird, they turned it in like to mass marketing. The other thing that he did beyond just that mass marketing was his speeches started to get more grand. He was able to, wherever he would be going to, he would talk the local military base or whoever they had to bring in the military spotlights to surround the campaign area that he was going to be doing his speech in. Loudspeakers always had like amplification loudspeakers. He wanted to be heard and he wanted to be heard, you know, memorably. He had lighting controls Mm -hmm. like at the podium where he was so he could dim lights to emphasize dramatic times during his speeches or raise the lights, that kind of shit. It was like, it was pageantry is what it is, is he was like, it was almost... I don't know. It was meant to like evoke like emotions in you, not like the information. It was almost supposed to make you feel a certain way more than like it was supposed to tell you something. It was, they were fucking rock concerts. Yeah. He was a rock star when he was out there. Mm-hmm. You can go listen to a band. And no perform. one had ever really, I don't think anyone had ever really seen all of this kind of come together. No. Like and, and not in such an arena like politics. I'm not saying this to praise it. What I'm saying is that like, it's just. I don't know. It's that perfect. I think I was telling you about it. It's like that diagram where the two circles and it's like absolute psychopath, like uh, perfect talent and like finding those two things. And it's like the center of the Venn diagram. It, it is. He found, he found himself where his greatest skill was the one that he used the most. Like it's, I, I don't know how it's like someone that was supposed to be like how they say like Eddie Van Halen was born or like Jimi Hendrix with yeah. a guitar. They put it and they just knew what to do with it. It's like that kind of just specific genius, but being so evil at the same time that it's literally an evil genius. He was, yeah, he was a showman. The man knew exactly what he wanted Mm -hmm. to do and he was able to do it and to just acknowledge that that's pretty impressive. Uh, It's tough to do with such an evil person, but he really was gifted. He, he had the ability to evoke emotions inside of people by using these lights, by using well, the not, color change. Not gifted enough because he ends up losing, what, like 18 million to 11 million? Yeah, but at the same time, for him to jump in to the race yes, so late... I understand that. To garner 37% of the vote, and he actually pushes um, Von Hindenburg to a runoff mm-hmm. because of the situation where... I don't know how. Like, I, they didn't really explain or I didn't see an explanation because an 11 million... Or 11 to 18, especially when it's not a, that's not the difference. That's the totals. That seems like a big enough one to be like, I think we can call this. Well, 
that that was the final vote. But the runoff is automatically triggered if you don't get over 50% of the vote. Oh, so okay. since he didn't get 50 and von Hindenburg didn't get 50, probably because Hitler tore a lot of votes from Hindenburg, mm. they had to go to a final runoff. So oh, him there and were Hindenburg other people running. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, him and Hindenburg were the only two that were involved in okay. the final one. They got the two highest percentage yes, of votes. Okay. Yeah. So that was what happened. Um, in between that first vote and the second vote, we have a story hit the tabloids of Mr. Rom. Uh, making homosexuality very rampant throughout the essay, like we talked about earlier. And Hitler comes up with what I can only say would probably be the most ass-backwards brilliant way to fight this. Uh, He claimed that Rom was so manly and so much of a man that his homosexuality was actually showing the strength of his masculinity. Mm -hmm. So he was just trying in a roundabout way to say, this dude is so manly that he doesn't even like women. He has to fuck other dudes to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the most word salad crazy thing to actually say. To actually say, come out and say that. Yeah. Knowing what all of your fucking <laughs> rhetoric and, like, your fucking book has said and everything like that, to come out and just think that, like, no one's going to look at me like, he says this, but now he's saying this other thing. Like, yeah. Which are, do we call into question? But it was never, like, called into question, like, Oh, I guess he's just wrong on this, but everything else, it never called into like, maybe his judgment's a little skewed. Yeah, it wasn't like, okay, so he said being gay is bad, but being super gay is extra good. Mm -hmm. It's like you get past the wrong back to another right. You break the threshold. (laughs) It's a horseshoe theory. So Hindenburg ends up winning the runoff. And at this time as well, the chancellor is this guy named Bruning. So Chancellor Bruning is... At this point, they've kind of allowed the SS and the SA to exist. And the reason they've been doing that is it all boils down to the Geneva, or not the Geneva Convention, the fucking Treaty of Versailles. Versailles. They haven't been happy, like German leadership has not been happy that they can only have 100,000 soldiers. So what they're looking at, they think that of the SS and the SA, they're basically like, these can be useful to us as almost like a standing military in case anything happened. They never expect them to be essentially turned against they're only thinking of it from an aspect of we can use this in case we're attacked or we need to attack someone else. Well, it allows them like a, a, a loophole for like having a, a built up military. The other thing that would scare you is the fact that the guy who's basically in charge of the SA and the SS just came in second in the presidential votes and really wanted to be well, president. <laughs> so, so Chancellor Bruni ends up banning the SS and the SA. So this guy at least sees some of the writing and was like, maybe we're not we're in a powder keg of a situation. Yeah, and this guy has a lot of power both politically and now like technically militarily. So Bruning actually gets fired because of this because it basically. They realized that, like, we need the SS and we need to have this, like, standing force. Yeah, they have to. Well, it was Bruning kind of his pushback on it, I think, is what was the nail in the coffin for him mm-hmm. because there were the other guys, and we'll talk about him here in a second, that kind of had Hitler's back as far as that was. And they sort of wanted him in a chancellery advisory role because it was another situation where they felt like he was somebody that they could use to get what they wanted. Exactly. They For, still thought that he was useful. Yeah. They still thought that they still somehow thought that like <laughs> he was going to be under their control. He had never been under their control and he just kept getting stronger. They were just like, well, at some point he can't possibly, like his ideas are too extreme. He'll never get the full majority. This is the max they're going to get. Something also happens that yeah. makes them kind of believe that. But- 
at this point, right before we take a bathroom break, Bruning is out, the guy that's against the SS and the SA. New guy comes in named Van Pappen. First thing he does, he lifts that band. So SS and SA are right back in, and we'll be right back as well. Oh, my God, Adam. What is what is that up in the sky? It It's a bird. It's a plane. It's socials. Oh, my God. It's faster than Instagram. That's historically high pod on Instagram. More powerful than X? It's historically high, historically H-I on X? Able to leap tall threads in a single bound. Back to historically high pod on threads. And, I mean, I guess there's still Gmail, right? We got that too. That is historically high podcast at gmail.com. All right, guys, back to the show. All right, getting back to it. Van Pappen, Franz von Poppen is in. So we got another new vote here. So new chancellor, new vote. Yep. New chancellor, new vote. So there's a new vote and apparently everyone gets voted. Like it's not just for certain positions. Like everyone just gets voted again. So basically what ends up happening during this one is now the Nazis become the biggest party in the Reichstag. And because they are now the biggest party in the Reichstag, guess who's eligible to run for chancellor? 1933 elections, March 6th. Put himself up for chancellor. You can't run for it. It has to be chosen. So he is eligible to be chosen as chancellor. They yielded 43% of the vote, and they used a coalition with somebody called the DNVP to take that 50% majority. So that automatically makes the H-man up for chancellery. Mm -hmm. And (coughs) Van Pappen was actually pretty down with taking over and overthrowing the Weimar Republic. So he, him and another guy, um, sorry, that was probably bad into the mic. Um, Kurt Von Schleicher? Yeah, Kurt Von Schleicher. Both go to um, Von Hindenburg and they're like, hey, I know that you want to make me Chancellor as Van Pepin. We kind of like this Hitler guy, though. He's like, Hitler's a loose cannon. We've. I'm not going to put the guy that mm-hmm. just ran for the presidency up there. That's not going to happen. Van Pappen, you're my guy. He's like, I'm not going <laughs> to take the guy that was bad yeah. me and that I beat. Now I have to be responsible for the job that he does. And if I put him in that position and he turns out to be shit, then it looks bad on me. And he's already a loose cannon. We already know that he's a little bit kooky. He was the guy that tried to get here by force before. Now yes, he's exactly. trying to get like, here Are we not forgetting, like, literally what to have, what he went to prison for? And here's the crazy thing, too, is, like, this is all still happening despite the fact that he went to prison for fucking treason. It didn't somehow disqualify him yeah. for holding any type of office like this. Like, he tried to violently overthrow the government, and just because now... He's doing it in what they consider their legitimate way. He's able to go ahead and do it. It is such a weird, weird thought that this could just continue to happen. Well, and the thing, too, is you got to think that, like, because the Nazi party has this many positions, the party is growing. You now have people that are in positions of, like, power, like in police and military and things like that, that are members of the Nazi party that were already there. And then other members joining those places to go ahead and also infiltrate yeah. and have positions of power there. So they're really, it's not just like, Oh, we've taken the right shag. It's literally them spreading their fucking like ten- Tentacle, tentacles yeah. out into fucking everything else. So they end up offering Hitler the vice chancellor position. Hey, that was a big mistake. And he's like, Nope, I'm not doing that shit. I'm not, I'm not 
playing second fiddle. That's not going to work for me. So during this time as well, because they become the largest party, Goering becomes the head of the Reichstag, which is basically like the Speaker of the House. When previously, after he got shot during the putsch, he fucking fled. He ended up going and turning himself in at some point. Then he went to a mental institution for like <laughs> morphine addiction and shit. So he's been in a fucking psych ward and now he's the goddamn speaker of the fucking house. Like what the fuck is going on here? What a glow up. That's incredible to go from there to there. Like, and so, so <laughs> y- you get him in this position as well. And using, um, what was it? Oh, sorry. Um, there was a situation where, some communists that there was a communist party also in the Reichstag. There was yeah. representation for the communists and they actually, because they kind of, I think saw Van Papen and like Hitler, like him and kind of support, not supported, you know, he put him up for the chancellor, but he wanted him to be chancellor. They actually did like a vote of no confidence in Papen. And so he's like, this is perfect. Like they're, they're going to get rid of, you know, the, the chancellor, there's going to be another opening. Maybe we can get Hitler in here. So, Basically, because he's the Speaker of the House, he's the one that has to call for the vote. Um, Goring does. So Van Papen actually goes to like von Hindenburg and has to get it fucks up a thing signed that says, like, I can't get voted out or has to have, like, a decree signed. It was to take over the emergency powers away from the Reichstag like he had done or like they That's had before. Right. So he literally comes back with this signed document as... Goering is like calling for the vote and is showing him in his face and Goering just is like looking over him acting like he doesn't see him he slams it down on the desk in front of him he's just and he, smiling and at he him. just smiles at him he calls the vote and holds it anyway and at a vote of 500 to 45 Papin is gone and Pretty not quick. gone in the sense of like he just gets booted but apparently like that means your term is coming to an end sooner no confidence and it's no confidence so basically he's still kind of in that position because it comes back into play here in a little bit so there's almost like this token Van Pappen in in the chancellor position. Well, the token Van Pappen is replaced by Schleicher. That's right. Yep. So, so again, he, they go to Hindenburg like, hey. Yeah, he offers to resign like on November 17th in 32. And then Kurt von Schleicher, instead of being like, well, we should put Hitler in this position, he actually kind of has a change of heart and goes to Hindenburg and is like, hey, you know, I was a general – in the military and everything, I want to give a crack at this chancellor thing. And Hindenburg is like, sure, cool. And well, he gets approved and put into position on December 2nd. In how does he not see what Goring just did? And he's like, I don't want any part of that. Like, that seems like a crazy... He thinks that because he's a general and everything, he's used to just holding people under his command. So I think that he, I think he thinks he can... Oh, that's why he does it. Because he thinks he can pull one up on the Nazi party. So what he does is to split their power base and not make them as effective, he offers the vice chancellor position to Strasser. And Strasser is like, uh, declines and is like, I can't. He's like, I'm not going to go against my party like that. They find out that they met and that he offered it, regardless of him declining it, they kick him out of the Nazi party. So now he doesn't have a political party. They can't turn right around and then put him back in there because he's no longer part of the majority party. So it's not like they can go back and be like, well, now that I'm out, I can, you know, I don't have party loyalty. He just can't take the position. Hey, he's gone. So January 4th in 1933, Hitler actually meets with Van Papen in secret. And basically they're like, hey, we should do this like Van Papen, Hitler, like deal and everything like that. And Hitler's like, nah. He's like, again, I'm not playing second fiddle. 
Like, I'm not going to be the, the vice chancellor of this. Well, they don't come to an agreement, but Hitler sets it up to where when he's leaving Van Papen's residence, he has his photographer snapping pictures. He gives him a big theatrical handshake like they just agreed on a partnership, big enthusiastic. And they end up running those fucking paper uh, pictures in the paper. The Nazi paper. The Nazi paper. And yeah. although Van Papen is out on this, he still has like... He has uh, Hindenburg's ear. Yes. Very much, uh, I don't know, somebody that he would bounce a lot of ideas off of. Papen and Hindenburg were pretty thick together. Mm-hmm. So uh, as this is happening, Von Schleicher takes over. We have another election. Um, failed to get over 50% the first election. Next election, they actually see a decent increase, but they still can't quite get there. Um, I believe they were at 43%, and they form another coalition, probably maybe with the same people. And by that time, they do hit the 50% majority, and so that puts Chancellor Hitler on the table because now he's a viable option. They've crossed that threshold. They have a chance. And it becomes a situation where Hitler is kind of asking for this before, and now he's in like an undeniable position. Well, and they find out, did you mention the tax scandal? Oh, that's so right. they threw spying and shit like that, and all of their fucking digging up dirt. Again, this party is like playing like dirty fucking politics. They're trying to find out anything they can on their political opponents. They got uh, Herbert Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover working for them. Yeah, yeah more or less. So they end up finding some stuff out on Hindenburg about like him not paying his taxes or some shit. So they have some dirt on him. Hindenburg is losing faith in Schleicher. Um, and so Papin comes back. And even though he's not in a chancellor position, he's still an influential person in politics. People still go and bend his ear for information, stuff like that. Yeah. So he actually proposes Hitler as chancellor again. And Papin's like, I'll be the vice chancellor. I'll keep him in check. And I'll keep him in check. That way you can fire him. But I'll also have all the day-to-day type dealing, so I'll be able to keep you apprised. And if he needs to get let go, I'll give you the signal, and you just get rid of him, and then I'll step back into the chancellor. He's like, we'll do this, and what we'll also do to limit his power is we won't let him fill all of these cabinet positions with, like, the Nazis. We're only going to give them two cabinet positions. So they're like, well, this sounds great. You know, we'll, we'll be able to go ahead and control him, get him to do what we want and everything. And so... Hindenburg reluctantly agrees and swears Hitler in on January 30th, 1933 as the fucking chancellor of Germany. And right after this happens, Ludendorff, <coughs> Ludendorff sends a letter, sends a letter to uh, Hindenburg. And basically <laughs> the gist of it is, I know Hitler, I've dealt with Hitler. What you've just done is you've turned over our country to a fucking madman. And this will be the decision that will haunt your name and curse your name for eternity. So basically just calls him out and says, this is what's going to fucking happen. And just calls the shot. Wasn't wrong. No. Five hours after fucking taking office, he meets with like, Hitler meets with like his cabinet, his inner circle, and starts making plans. He's like, so we should just dissolve parliament. We should just dissolve the Reichstag, right? And basically because he can't just go about just dissolving it because it's part of the Constitution. He doesn't have those powers yet or anything, and he still has oversight. He's like, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to set up new elections because there's a new chancellor. and The new elections are going to be held on March 5th. So they got the elections sorted out, got that um, squared away and coming up. Well, during a dinner prior to the elections, 
there's um, there's a whole bunch of like the military brass and all that kind of stuff. And Hitler ends up giving a speech and basically lays out what his policy and what his reign is going to be. Rearmament is going to be a priority. The conquest of the East to take back the lands lost. And is it Liebenstag? Is that what I was trying to figure out what that is? It's his, his whole thing is about, it's this term. I want to say it's Liebenstag. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, but what it translates to in German is living space. And his grand design, as also I think covered in Mein Kampf, is that he wants to create a unite all of the German's people, German people, and then give them enough room to thrive by conquering into the East and giving them room to to grow and to create an empire. And part of this is, you know, he's talking to these people that are in the military, and they're just like, like, is this guy fucking like serious? Like, this guy's in a position now where. He's going to try to make this stuff happen. Like, this is some crazy shit. But then he has a couple people that are still under that, you know, stab in the back type thing where they're like, we shouldn't have lost. Like, maybe this is is our destiny. Maybe we're supposed to have another shot at this. And so as he's scheming, he just constantly is trying to figure out a way to gain more power. And he's doing these things that seem kind of innocuous when they get put in front of the Reichstag. Like they're restricted to the two cabinet positions, but how he ends up circumventing that as he's like, so Hermann Goering is in one of the positions. Why don't we make him like interior minister of Prussia? And they're like, okay. I mean, that seems like it's not a super important cabinet position. He'll, he'll just be the minister of, of Prussia. That gives him control over the police state and the policing of yeah. Prussia. Prussia holds 60% of the German population. So they just handed the Nazi party the policing authority over 60% of the German population. And it's around this time that now that that's in play, Goering sets up what's going to be known as the secret state police and more commonly known as the Gestapo. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right, the Gestapo. There's just so many weird kind of things at play. Like he, he's figured out so well the ways where he can circumvent the law to where he can still kind of work within that democratic framework that he lied that he was going to stick to. But he had a brain to be able to figure out, like putting Goering in that position. It's such a strategic move that it seems so brilliant, but nobody would catch on to it. Nobody mm-hmm. would understand what was going on. And I think we're about to get into the most contentious part of our uh, topic, at least between you and I, because I know that we have some differing opinions on this. Yeah. But when you were talking about um, Hitler not really being able to figure out how to get rid of that whole Reichstag issue and try to dissolve Parliament so he doesn't have to work with them, um, on February 27th, 1933... A younger gentleman named Marianus van Lube or Vanderlub. Vanderlub. Uh, he was a Dutch communist. He had made his way into Germany. Um, God, I don't remember. It was like lye or something like that. It was a, a mining industry, I mm-hmm. believe. So this guy was partially blind and apparently very easily wasn't the sharpest tool and was very easily influenced. Maybe. I. This is where we're going to... And we're going to agree to disagree on this, but... Basically, February 27th, he buys a buttload of lighters, and all of a sudden, very conveniently, the Reichstag happens to be set on fire. And Hitler sees this, 
and is just absolutely thrilled and mentions something, I think, to either, no, not Goring, but I think Goebbels, and he's like, I've got them now, or something like that. Coincidentally enough, here's here's my pitch. Goering is the first one on the scene, and basically they immediately blame communists. They haven't even found this Vanderloop guy yet, but they immediately suspect that it's a communist, international communist plot. So they end up finding, you know, the firefighters are there. They're trying to put out the fire. The main chamber is already kind of, you know, collapsed on in, in on itself. And wandering the fucking ruins and burned out portions is a shirtless Vanderlube, who once he said it, because of the smoke and his partial blindness and his confusion, couldn't find his way out of the Reichstag, yet somehow survived in there. I don't know. And the other part, too, is that yeah, the police come and they interview him, but because Goring is there and controls essentially the police, they're able to completely control the narrative. And without even a, this guy just happens to be like a card carrying member of the communist party. Like it's, it's right after he fucking gets elected. He's starting to make these changes. He needs the right stag out of the way you're in chaos. He needs something to happen to go ahead and grant himself those emergency powers that basically turned the chancellor into the sole authority. And what better way than to have a communist end up setting fire to the Reichstag? The, the newspapers that they have access to even run that story like the next day before it's even been investigated into. They control that yeah. much of it to where now they've drummed up essentially this public fever of like, we're under attack from communism. And... This Germany under attack line is essentially going to be used to create this thing called the Reichstag Fire Decree. And the very next day, the very next day. And what this does, and I'm trying to figure out how this passed and how any of this was justified as far as like how it relates to a communist setting fire to this building. So basically Hitler is saying our country is under attack a national threat by the communists. So what I'm going to do as part of this fire decree is it's going to go ahead and put certain powers in myself, basically all of them. What it's also going to do is I'm going to really crack down on things like the right to assemble, uh, free speech. Also, it's going to go ahead and increase police powers where they're able to go ahead and do a little bit more than they should. And after this is passed within the first two weeks, 10,000 people are arrested under suspicion of being a communist, and not just that, um, I think some of the people in the Jewish community are oh, also yeah. arrested. Anybody that at this point is not a political ally of Hitler, people just start getting picked up. Anybody that's not nailed down with Nazi nails mm -hmm. is getting, well, men. The, the women, I think, were probably mostly spared, and it was men that were taken in. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It was a hell of a move. I think he mostly got it through because they were still, they hadn't had their elections yet. I think Hindenburg signed it when he was still half asleep or some yeah. shit. And Hindenburg, they just threw it in front of again, him. Again, getting getting it, on in the years. And he's, it was, and it was an old man. fear mongering too. We're under attack by the, by the, you know, communists and everything. I need these powers now so I can go ahead and save us. You know, I'm the, I'm the German savior. Yeah. I, it was definitely a move that feels like it was a. <sighs> I don't know that it could have been planned and coordinated. It's, I just feel like it's, this is, um, the great depression all over again. This is a stock market crash all over again. It just chaos. The, the right every place time, at the right time. Every time he's gained a new level 
a power, it has been through chaos. And, yeah. that, and at this point, he's learned how to manufacture that, not wait for it. He's now manufacturing the chaos. I don't think he manufactured this one. You say it's too, it's too coincidentally timed. It's too coincidentally tied up neatly with a found adversary that he could turn into a national scare and get himself these powers, man. I think it's just too, if, if looking into him, he, the plan may seem far fetched and stuff like that. Like, what if that guy would have escaped the fire or something like that? I'm not even saying that they like approached him as the Nazi party and everything, but if he was out and they had, you know, they had people everywhere, like I was saying, all they had to do was influence him. He could have been there and been waiting for another guy to help him that could have been in on it or someone posing as a communist. And that guy just didn't show up or that guy showed up, helped him do it and then left. The other thing too. So Goering was the first one on there. Coincidentally enough, Goering also has, in his office, a tunnel that leads into the Reichstag. So it's not like it's that far-fetched. I mean, agree to disagree and everything like that. Either way, it works out in in beautiful just coincidence Yeah, for Hitler. So you give a 0% chance on it was... Zero. Okay. I'll put zero on that. I'll stamp that shit. Okay. And then even after that, so he's trying to gain more powers, more powers. Then we get to the Enabling Act. And what that does is that's... Well, we got to hit the elections. Oh, okay. Yeah, so March 6, 1933, after all this happened, um, they yield 43% of the vote again and have to form another coalition to be able to get that 50% majority. So there's still people, and this is where I come back, like the conversation that we've had versus the Nazi party, the people that collaborated and were with them versus what population of Germany we believe was against this, but kind of powerless to do anything. Yeah. The fact that they're still not getting 50% of the vote, even with all of the potential influence and voter intimidation, everything like that, that they're pulling at this point still says to me that like, the majority is still trying to find something different. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's going to stay that way once everything kicks off, but at least at this point, there's still, there's still some resistance to these ideas. Uh, and that's solely the Nazi party. Uh, the other factions of the far right, like the DNVP again, that they had to um, form these coalitions with, they had to use them in certain ways to be able to get there. So these people had to kind of believe in the shit that Hitler was putting out there. Mm -hmm. So they were also probably fairly bad people too. But almost the more interesting stat was we saw these major jumps in popularity for them to get to where they were. And then it's almost kind of like tabled. Like it, there weren't more heights in the public voting system that they were going to be able to get to. They saw that they had gotten to essentially a stalemate yeah. on this. They weren't they, growing they nationally. And now they needed to look for another way to essentially, not even even the odds and everything, they basically needed a way to get them that additional bump and that extra step up. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're talking about with the Enabling Act. Um the Enabling Act basically just granted Hitler's power to enact laws without the Reichstag's consent for four years. Um, that is an extremely long time to just completely gut the Reichstag. I mean, these to people turn over are, that power. Yeah, they're still going to be voted for. Um, they're still going to be put into office and all that kind of stuff. But they're basically just there to fill seats. Yeah, like there's just there's really no other thing that they can do. Um, March twenty third. They put it to the vote, 
And they're voting, I believe it's in like a theater or something like that. Yeah, like an opera house or something like that. Yeah. Could have been. Um, the whole entire place is lined with SS members. SS and the yeah, SA. Yeah, yeah. They're they're right there to make sure that this vote goes the way that it should go. And of course it passes I think with like a ninety percent of the vote in the Reichstag. Four hundred and forty one to ninety four. Okay. So not a 90%, but a, a good amount. <laughs> yep. yep. And this is when you start to see essentially at this point, pretty much all the, they're never going to relinquish this level of power. They they get to this and they only gain more. It never goes back until the end of World War II. Yeah. And they, they do some crazy shit. They um, ban the Social Democratic Party. Uh, all trade unions are forced to dissolve. Did you see how they did that with the trade unions? Uh-uh. So what they did is Hitler fucking created a union holiday. They'd wanted a trade oh, union yeah, holiday. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then that weekend, as they left for a long weekend, he raided their fucking offices for all the trade unions and basically, like, arrested a whole bunch Just of the black people. Just black bag jobbed them. Black bag jobbed them so he could go do this while they were all, you know, going on a long weekend. And basically that's what they used to dissolve the trade unions. Um, like you said, they basically arrested leaders of other political parties and this is where you're going to get the first instances of them being sent to what will become the concentration camps. At this point, they're just kind of the prison and work camps. Yeah, sort of the same idea as like a um, – well, I think concentration comes from the sort of re-education that they're trying to do That's right. they're, for yep. a lot of these. So you have these labor union leaders that are going into these concentration camps. This along- is more like Dachau. I yeah, think first. Yeah, I think that was like what, like twelve miles from Munich. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're pulling these guys in. These social democratic party leaders that are getting taken there at the same time are also being reprogrammed to try to be Nazis. And it's a full on police state. Like this yeah. is when it. For, like this is literally just like you're taking out your political opponents. You're arresting them for essentially no crimes other than just being politically against you. Well, and that. Leads right into July 14th, 1933. Again, just bang, bang, bang. Nazi Party is declared the only legal political party in Germany. So they have become the only people that are allowed to rule, which is, I mean, you just, you don't lose after that. Mm -hmm. So you are basically, in essence, the only party that is allowed to do anything politically. So you just own the country. Uh, I don't know if you have anything before Hindenburg's passing. So before his passing, they also start to put in some pretty, as crazy as we've already discussed stuff. Now we start getting into the real fucking horrible shit. So kind of during this time, um, Himmler takes over with the Gestapo. He's already kind of been working and building up the SS. At this point, there's a million SS members. Um, Dachau, like we were talking about, gets opened up. It was an old munitions factory. They didn't build these things purpose-built essentially at this point for like the concentration camp. So they'd repurpose places. Yeah. Um, there's a boycott of all Jewish businesses. Um, businesses are banned and they're also banned from like schools and higher education. They're really starting to ban them at this point from any type of like holding any type of civil offices and any type of like social settings. Yeah. Uh, July 20th, Pope fucking Pius signs the Concord Act with fucking Hitler. I don't know what it was, (laughs) but the fact that the fucking Pope fucking signs up with fucking Hitler for something, I know it wasn't a, a bad thing. Right, it was a bad thing, but it wasn't like a nay. He's not like, I'm signing this act to condemn you. Like, it wasn't that type of shit. Still working with a bad man. Exactly. Um, 19- oh, we have a ton of shit before Hindenburg. 
Yeah, okay, what do you got? So I was going to say, in 33, this is where you get the sterilization laws coming into play. So as part of this, um, you're getting people that essentially have undesirable traits that are being sterilized overall uh, throughout the course of the Nazi reign. 400,000 people are going to be rendered childless. And 300,000 people that are in psychiatric hospitals are going to be euthanized. I can't remember what they fucking tried to dress it up for, but they tried to call it something that made it seem like it was a fucking merciful death or some shit like that. But yeah, 300,000 just people being in psychiatric hospitals were all euthanized. Yeah, his eugenics policy just ran wild. He was trying to build this superior race of people by taking out the less fortunate people in life that hadn't been gifted, you know, with the normalities that other people have. And just those numbers alone to think about the sterilization is so bad, but the euthanization of the others is just, it's crazy. Well, on October 14th, they actually vote to um, pull themselves out of the League of Nations. I thought this would have happened before this, but apparently they're waiting on it. Hitler actually schedules the vote for Armistice Weekend. So it reminds everybody why they fucking lost. So when they're talking about the League of Nations, it's drumming up all those feelings and that fucking passes. Like you said, they have the Nazi only elections. They have the trial for the fucking Reichstag fire. Five people are up on trial. Mm-hmm. One guy is, you know, Vanderlube and then yeah. there's some other they what they consider conspirators. Basically rounded them up yep. and said you were a part of this. One of the guys ends up becoming like the prime minister of like Holland or something at really? some point. Yeah. And he, when it all is said and done, even the fucking legal system at this point, only Vanderlube is found guilty. The other ones, there's not enough evidence. Apparently this guy that ends up becoming like the prime minister or something like that. I can't remember which country. Don't, don't quote me that it's Holland. He ends up just like making like Goebbels and Goering on the stand, like look like a fool with like cross-examination. And so he ends up getting the other four guys off. Vanderlube, I think, is put under the guillotine. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, he doesn't meet a, a great end. The Hitler starts to notice the issue. He's starting to kind of look. He's already making plans for the expansion. One of the things that's drawing his eye is the uh, Jewish corridor and the separation of Prussia. His focus is to try to unite, essentially. The Polish corridor? Yep. What did I say? Jewish. I said Polish. Did I say Jewish corridor? Maybe you said Polish. I think I said like Polish. Jewish. Um, there probably are some Jewish people living there, Yeah, but the Polish corridor. And so Poland starts to get a little worried about all this stuff because out of all of the countries that essentially have the most German land taken from essentially the pre-World War One German empire or whatever is Poland. If anything, they would, I would think that they would feel like they're got the biggest bullseye on them. So Hitler is just like, you know what, let's just sign a non-aggression pact and we'll try to figure out this whole, you know. <laughs> Polish corridor thing later. Big on non-aggression packs. That was a, a big thing that I think he did with a lot of different countries that seemed like he just, he was basically sending a pre-aggression pact with mm-hmm. them. That's all that it was. <laughs> just let you know I'm here. Yep. Yeah. Along with that, uh, expanded the Wehrmacht to 600,000. So six times the amount that he was supposed to be able to. Um, as soon as he gets out of the League of Nations, he's like, well, it's fucking on now. Yeah, that was it, like, it was like some weird, like, that's not what is keeping them from fucking <laughs> raising a military. But it's like, it was a weird, like, formality for him. He's like, oh, so this gives me permission since I'm no longer under yeah. your guys' jurisdiction. <laughs> but yeah, so like you were saying, on August 22nd in 34, Hindenburg dies. Hitler's still just building up his power base. That's all he's doing is he's grabbing any control wall where he can. 
Yeah, and he before von Hindenburg dies, um, we have some some real business to take care of. Uh, the night of the long knives. Oh yes, the night of the long knives occurred from the thirtieth of June to the second of July in nineteen thirty four, and it was basically Hitler tying up any loose end that he felt like needed to be tied up. So what kind of caused this? Did you see what kind of caused this to actually happen? Yeah. Um, Rom was going to Van Schleicher, sort of uh, allegedly behind Hitler's back. It, it got, there was enough there that they found out. Like, Rom wasn't happy because the SA was having to take the backseat when they felt like they were, like, one of the sole reasons for the rise of the party and, like, their authority. Yeah. So they were, like, you know, they were now kind of, like, they the old kid. They had the new kid now, the SA and the Gestapo and everything. So they thought that they were being betrayed. Um, they were jealous of that. Th- they, they were given jobs too. Like, they found out about the trade union thing and they're like, we're yeah. the fucking workers. Like, what the fuck are you doing? You just gave all the power to like, you were supposed to be the national socialist uh-huh. German workers party. So they felt fucking betrayed by this stuff. Well, and to satiate them too, they were like, Hey, go work in these concentration camps. Like you guys can go bully. Or these, you could be the border force. Yeah. You could like be the border just, force and everything. And Ron was like, no, I'm not fucking. So he actually kind of speaks against Hitler a little bit. Um, and, at some point, there's some other infighting. Like, Papin apparently is still, like, not a political power, but he's still influential influential politically. So he, like, attacks Goebbels, and then... Um, I'm trying to kind of figure out how this leads up to the Night of Long Knives. Long knife, sorry. Um, Hitler ends up visiting Hindenburg, like, before his death. And it's under the guise of letting him know what's going on with the workings and everything, but it's really just to see what his health is and, like, how close, how much time Hitler has before he's dead. Yeah. And he can really make his his biggest moves. But getting back to the Night of the Long Knives, so there's some dissension going on, and basically Hitler finds out about this and gets hold of Rom and is like, hey, we need to go ahead and meet up, get all of your lieutenants and everything. We need to talk about this and kind of bury this thing and figure out how you guys are going to contribute. So... During this whole point, too, is, you know, Himmler's been digging up all this stuff on Rom, and I think he's introduced some false stuff. Yeah. Like, he said that Rom was meeting, like, with French dignitaries yep. and all this shit. He met with, like, Strasser and, like, all these other people and basically plays up this fear that, like, he's going to make a move against Hitler. So, June 27th, the Night of the Long Nights was actually the 31st, right? Um, It was... From June 30th to July 2nd, so okay. I'm assuming, because they had rounded up the SA. And yeah, so Hitler's on his way back, I think, to Berlin. He calls to get the SS mobilized, tells Rom to basically gather his lieutenants, and then, oh, he's they're in Munich, sorry. So Hitler flies to Munich to basically arrest Rom, and comes in to either the hotel or wherever they're staying, comes into his room, and Rom wakes up with Hitler and his Luger and his bodyguard standing over him. And come to find out that, like, next door was, like, a lieutenant, like, sleeping with, like, <laughs> another, like, uh, SA, SA, member. <laughs> SA member. And then, like, they start going down the whole hotel. And it's just, like, all of this just, like, dude-on-dude dude action just, yeah. like, spilling out of these hotel rooms. Hot dude-on-dude dude action is happening as they're breaking these doors down. Mm-hmm. So on the 31st, Hitler calls Goering and gives him, do you remember the code word? Uh, Calibre. Huh? Calibre. Calibre. He gives him the word for the, to run with the operation for the SA purge. Okay. And it's not just 
the SA that is getting purged by this. At this point, Hitler needs to have complete and total control. So any dissent and anybody that has wronged him, the night of the long knives is for them. Yeah. So they storm uh, Pappen's office and he's not there. His press secretary is. So they pull him into a room and shoot him in the back 10 times. (laughs) Uh, Kurt Von Schleicher, he's the guy that kind of stole the chancellorship that first time away from Hitler he ends up getting killed in his home by some Gestapo guys, and his wife comes out after they shoot him and they kill her too. Yep. Yeah, she didn't make it out alive. Uh, Strasser gets arrested and thrown into jail, into a Gestapo jail, and then they fire at him with a machine gun through the bars. <laughs> He's trying to dodge it, and finally they open the cell and finish him off. Um, Ritter von Carr, remember the guy during the beer hall putsch that told Hitler he was going to be on his side and then left and got the police involved. Yeah, he paid for that. They end up killing him, like take him out to the swamp and kill him with a pickaxe. And even the guy who helped Hitler write Mein Kampf, fucking, they kill him. Because he was the one he that was aware much. of the truth of certain things and everything. And yeah. so they end up getting rid of him as well. So it, and this is, this isn't just the people that I'm talking about that get killed. This is just kind of like showing you how wide sp- spanning it is. It's not just people within the SA or within his own organization. Anybody yeah. that has ever crossed him is going to fucking get it this night. It was officially reported. Um, 85 people died. Later estimates and going back and looking at it, it looks like about 1,000 people had died. And that was members of the SA that they had rounded up that they were killing if they weren't sending them off to these work camps. They were literally like they, – they had made a call for people to report back to like um, SA headquarters – and as they were showing up, they were just being like, nope, follow us. And then they would have this, these buses full of guys, take them to Gestapo headquarters and line them up against the wall and shoot them. Yeah, just a real bad deal. He put some real torture on Rom. Uh, Rom was in a prison cell, and he had two Gestapo guards go in. They dropped him off a Luger, and they dropped him off one bullet. And they said, if you have any uh, bravery, you will do what the Fuhrer wants you to do. They walk out of the cell, no shot, no shot, no shot. Walk back into the cell. He says he's not going to kill himself, and they kill him. Mm-hmm. Just they put that little bit of extra mind torture in there, almost like they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to have to report to Hitler that it was that way. Almost like it was Rom's last test of loyalty or some yes, shit. Yeah. yeah. But in the end, it was going to kill him. So, <laughs> yeah, but Hitler would have felt a lot better. I'm guessing would have been like his loyalty was always to me, like and everything. But the fact it was like a last insult to fucking Hitler. Yeah, but it really was just him cleaning up every sort of issue that could challenge his power, and he gets the ultimate cleanup. Um, August second, nineteen thirty four. What happened in September though? What was the I forgot? What was the Ship Act? Uh, Ship Act. Yeah, the Nazi Party enacts the Nuremberg Laws. Oh, that's, um, we'll get to that right after, because this is 34, that's 35. Oh, okay. I just put it in the wrong spot. So, 1934, (coughs) excuse me, Hindenburg dies. And when Hindenburg dies, um, Hitler had put it in writing and had Hindenburg sign at some point that as Hindenburg dies, the presidential position is dissolved. And It's something he paints it. He paints it as a way that no one will ever compare. Yeah. To and yep. sends him off and like he's like he's gonna receive a he gets a funeral service like one of like the Kaisers. And he sends him off. He's like, no one can ever fill von Hindenburg's shoes. He's like, and so because of that, it'll just be the Chancellor. No one will be president again. It'll just be the Chancellor. 
And ultimately, when he does that, he takes over all of the military power, all of the military fight. Um, we have, as you were just talking about, September 15th, 1935, um, he enacts two separate laws, and these laws were called the Nuremberg Laws. One of them was called the Reich Citizenship, or the Reich Citizenship Act. Um, that one, it, both of these are pertaining to Jewish people. Um, come on. Uh, the citizenship law was the Nazi party had always promised that if they came to power, only racially pure Germans would be allowed to hold German citizenship. The Reich citizenship law made it this a reality. The law defined a citizen as a person who is of German or related blood. This meant that Jews defined as a separate race could not be full citizens of Germany and they had no political rights. So they use citizenship through genealogy, basically, to disqualify any Jewish people from having any sort of political power to be able to vote or do anything else. To be able to actually enact change. We're yeah. taking, we've taken away so much from you already, but now here's the last vestige of any choice you have in something. Yeah. Um, and these are coming just straight from the Holocaust Encyclopedia. Uh, our second one is going to be the Law of Protection of German Blood and Honor. And that law for the protection of German blood and honor was a law against the Nazis viewed as a race mixing or race defilement. That sounds terrible. Uh, banned future intermarriages and sexual relations between Jews and people of German-related blood. The Nazis believed that such relationships were dangerous because that led to mixed-race children. According to Nazis, these children were uh, these children and their descendants undermined the purity of the German race. So not only have you stricken... He's not taking any, any time. Yeah. Yeah, just that quick to just start dropping them from political power and then to start controlling marriages so they were unable to really have any sort of effect. Mm -hmm. And it just really gets worse from there. We'll talk about Kristallnacht in a little bit, but that was just one of the worst things that I ever had to read about. Um, March 36, uh, Germany reoccupies the Rhineland. So they've already started moving on into these territories to take it over. So they took over the DMZ, the demilitarized zone. Um, July 36. Well, they, and, and, and at this point, kind of going back to what you were saying after leaving the league of nation, like expanding the, what they consider now the German military, they yeah. call it the, the Wehrmacht. And so they expand that up initially to 600,000. They already have a huge pool that they can pull from, like former SA, SS, things like that, that they can put into positions of leadership. They've been developing already an air force, and Goering has been put in charge of that. And basically what they're doing is they're training pilots as part of like a flying sport club. Yep. Like it's like sport flying. So that's how they're able to get away with the development of like fighter aircraft and everything. They're supposed to be for recreational. Um and they start also starting to like develop and start to kind of build up like a navy, pocket destroyers, pocket destroyers, or pocket battleships. That's okay. It yeah. was pocket battleships, so it wasn't violating certain things about the size of like ships they were supposed to have. What they've also started doing is they're designing the bombers that they're going to be using for their terror campaigns, except they're using them and putting seats in them and you using them as passenger and cargo planes. So they're basically super easy to be converted into like bomb bays and everything. Yeah. So they're developing an air force for attack, but disguising it as just 
commercial aircraft. And you got to understand at this time too, again, there's not fucking satellite. There's not surveillance. There's not anything like that. You do have people that are in Germany that are representatives of the powers that won the first world war, like embassies and things like that. You have ambassadors that are, you know, working with certain people within Germany, but this stuff isn't being done right in their sight line. They're doing this in remote places where they can do it in secret. And these people don't know what's going on. You again have, you know, all of like the press within Germany completely stifled for, you know, freedom of the press, but that doesn't go to the foreign correspondents, but they're only able to see certain information. They do see a lot of the shit of cutting down on the rights. They're completely aware of yeah. that because they know that their German counterparts can't do shit. They're so, watching the left hand while the right hand is developing everything that they, they need. They see this stuff going against the Jewish community. And so th- this information is getting out of Germany about all this stuff. It's just that none of these other countries, no one wants to get into another war. You know, there's a little bit of like, hey, you know, what the fuck's going on in Germany? But no one has stepped in to be like, actually be like, hey, stop what you guys yeah. are fucking doing. Nobody's put their foot down. Like, no one's willing to, like, go in at this point. Everyone's still kind of trying to work to rebuild themselves after this, but I, I think when this finally came to light about what's going on, they're like, okay, when did this fucking happen? Like, did this guy literally just sneak into here? And they're <laughs> like, no, this, sh- like, six years, five, six years. They've been working years. on it. Yeah, they've, they've been fucking doing this the whole time. And so now you get to, like you were saying, 36... Germany reoccupies the Rhineland and everything. Um, or that's March 36. July 36, you get Francisco... Um, Franco. Francisco Franco and the Spanish Civil War. So you get him leading, was it the nationalist or what was his? His was the revolutionary side. Yeah. And then you had the Republic. The Republic Communists. The, yep, and that were still in. So you had <coughs> essentially this Russia supporting the Republic, the current mm-hmm. power... And then you had Hitler stepping in and being like, hey, Franco, you you need some help? Well, we got some shit that we want to test out. Yeah, you think w- would, would you be... mind testing out and seeing these tanks work and seeing how these guns work? And, you know, why don't we send over some pilots to just help you guys train yeah. you guys, maybe fly some of the planes? So I think we've mentioned this kind of before in a previous episode, um, probably like the D-Day one, that they had, the Luftwaffe had had training. So they were just basically doing like a warm-up war. They had nothing to win or lose in this. But if they did win, Hitler was essentially creating a potential ally. Yeah. So that happens during the Spanish Civil War. Then we get August 1936. Hitler orders Goering to basically prepare Germany for war in four years. So he's already putting a date on it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty fucking quick. That's pretty fast to be able to put all this stuff together. If it's just indeed four years, but it's really not because they've been working on this and slowly piecing these things together to be able to convert them. And so four years is a real sped up timeline. And as we'll see, I mean, he says that in 36, they've already been at war for years by the time four years would be up. By Mm -hmm. the time 1940 rolls around, they're already hot and heavy. I think the thing is, is he has some situations in which he plans for. Yeah. So he's like, we're going to be in war in four years. But what happens is I think he has like... Because he starts preparing, you know, the war in the East is offensive. And, but I think that he thinks it's going to maybe take longer and he's going to have larger breaks before like the next yeah, campaign. Could be. But once he gets into it and they start just steamrolling and being able to take over these territories, I think his brain kicks in and is just like, oh, let's just keep going. Yeah, oh, let's just keep enough. going. We'll like, yeah. We're, I, we're taking these guys' prize. Like, so November 1st, is this when him and Mussolini? Decide to go ahead and create their little little partnership. Yeah, this is when Mussolini declares the Axis, and like we kind of talked about earlier with Hitler and Mussolini, 
Hitler really looked up to Mussolini. He he felt like he was somebody that he wanted to model his kind of takeover after. And the first time they meet um, is, I we believe, maybe the first time that he had actually left the country and went down to Italy. He meets Mussolini down there. Um, he has, like, really poor Italian that has that really just nasty accent behind it. Mm-hmm. And Mussolini got taught, like, third-grade German. So these two can't communicate whatsoever, really. And it's just kind of Hitler yelling at Mussolini and Mussolini trying to figure out, like, what words he can use in German to try to impress mm-hmm. this guy. And, of course, it's passed off for both of, like, their <laughs> newspapers and everything is like, a, a shining success yeah. of a partnership. And, like, nothing fucking came of it. So Mussolini's taking him around Italy. And one of the things that they had scheduled was an army parade. Mm-hmm. And so they roll up to it. And Mussolini's guys are so just out of practice and just don't care anymore that as they're marching down the street, they're running into each other. Mm-hmm. And as they're running into each other, these different uh, units and troops start fighting on the street in front of Mussolini and Hitler. <laughs> Mussolini's just sitting there hey, watching it. Yeah. watch where you're going. <laughs> I was here first. Hitler kind of looks over at Mussolini and Mussolini's like, yeah? You impressed? He's like, how the good? fuck yeah. have you been a dictator for 12 years what already? What are you doing, man? Just the, the way that they meet each other was just so unspectacular. And by the time Hitler left, Mussolini's like, this guy's a joke. And Hitler's like, the fuck did this guy get in power? Mm -hmm. So they already have that dynamic of like, Mussolini was built up so much in Hitler's mind that when he finally meets him, it's like, wow, I passed this like five years ago. Well, this is disappointing. Yeah. You, you don't got a whole lot going on here. Maybe it wasn't as tough for you to get to where you got to as it was for me. Well, and the thing is, so, he, you know, he hasn't essentially done anything as far as like invading anyone yet, but he knows essentially that there's going to be some blowback between like Britain, uh, France, uh, possibly the United States. Like, yeah, you know, we're still the fucking ocean away and everything. And so he basically, you know, when he's building up for war and everything, he understands also through some of the military commanders that know about actual fucking like war mm-hmm. and everything. I think he listens to them enough to where it is. He knows he needs to have some support. He can't count exclusively on Franco yet because he doesn't know how that's going to go. And he knows that he might be weak, essentially, from, you know, the Mediterranean strategically. He knows that part of his plan, of course, is to fucking invade Russia. He knows he's going to need support for that, too. And he knows that there's somebody that he needs to partner up with. Mussolini is really kind of the only choice in this scenario because he's also a dictator and feels like he has some type of similarities with him he had to get there somehow (laughs) exactly like he has maybe i can learn something from this guy yeah so hitler orders preparations for war in the east by 1938 so they're just fucking building up armor the entire time we stepped up that four years timeline pretty quick Mm -hmm. and then no later than 1943 is when they want to go ahead and invade the east he appoints himself war minister in early 1938, despite his only soldiering experience literally being as a messenger, <laughs> a bike fucking messenger, however they traveled around in World War One. Yeah, pretty, pretty bold move. And I don't know if that speaks more to like his megalomania or just the fact that he really only had one plan and that was just what he wanted to go with. Well, like once he establishes himself as war minister, getting to, you know, Night of the Broken Glass, I think once he sets those plans in motion and then the the gears are working to get them built up for war, he then can focus his attention on this other shit. And so 
you get what's called, is it crystal knocked? Crystal knocked. Yeah. I almost think just with you saying that maybe after this all happens and he does become the war minister and they kind of have their eyes on some prizes, they needed something big to really distract those war correspondents and the other people from, from that's seeing true this. for the build up. It, yeah. It could have been a smoke screen. I mean, this is like the worst smoke screen possible. Uh, the night of the broken glass is from November 9th to November 10th in 1938. Jewish homes, hospitals, schools, everything is just sacked and demolished. Synagogues are fucking completely, like, torched. 267 synagogues are torched. Over 7,000 Jewish businesses are destroyed. 30,000 Jewish men are arrested and sent to the concentration camps. They said... Oh, shit. That was oh my a bad God, bubble. Like, you sound like Patrick Mahomes right there. <laughs> is that what it was? <laughs> hey, everybody. They said that... By the time Kristallnacht was over, that someone in every Jewish family in Germany had had a male of their family arrested. Mm -hmm. Just an insane amount. And, of course, they were all shipped off to these concentration camps. Um, Officially, again, 91 Jewish people were murdered. Uh, new estimates just going back and looking through and not to mention the people that then took their lives after they realized kind of where they were. Uh, new estimates are in the hundreds. I still feel like that's low with 30,000 being arrested and as many, you know, synagogues, businesses were destroyed. Someone comes in and out just to voice protest and they're getting fucking shot. Well, and just to think about the livelihoods of how many families were ruined. 7,000 businesses were destroyed. Mm-hmm. 7,000. There were that many businesses that were owned by Jewish people. That had to have been the majority, or if not all of them. I mean, your whole... This is obviously planned for a long time. Yeah. The way that it was, you know, executed and everything like that. It had obviously been in the works for a long time. Like you said, I think he just had certain things. He, he had a psycho list. And he had to cross certain stuff, and he would crossed off the fucking war ministry. He's like, what's next? And it was like, crystal knocked. And he was like, fuck yes. <laughs> yeah. Even before this, the thing that I really had never heard about, um, any Jewish people that were moving out of Germany had to pay an immigration tax. And that immigration tax would be on basically any asset that they had. And it was an extremely high tax that just made it almost impossible for a family to move out of the country with anything, maybe, but traveling with the clothes on their back. Exactly. Yeah. So just the get out. We don't want you here. Well, if you're going to leave, we're going to take all your shit before you leave to make it impossible to want to leave. So these people were just in a no win situation. And when crystal knock kicks off and it happens, it's just like the last straw really of, a, a major list of shit that was done to them. And it's just the beginning. This yeah. is literally just yeah. the beginning, essentially, of the rounding up. Like, the other stuff has been, like, light and basically just, like, public persecution, things like that. This is literally now, like, your your freedom is being taken away from you. Your life is being taken away from you. And this doesn't stop. This kind of thing doesn't stop, not just in Germany, but any of the countries that they're going to go ahead and occupy and take over this is going to be, it's going to repeat itself. The version of it is going to occur in all of those different countries. Um, They realize as they're gearing up for war, hey, you know, Hitler knows that at some point he's going to be going against Russia. That's where he's going to be expanding to. So what's on the other side of Russia? Well, why don't we go ahead and make an alliance with Japan? So they go ahead and get that started in 1938 with the intention. It's kind of twofold for Hitler. 
One, he understands that at a certain point, once this war kicks off, the United States is going to come in. But if he can somehow distract them and give them something else to do, they have to then split their resources and split their forces. He sees Japan as an opportunity to go ahead and occupy the United States in the Pacific theater. On the other side, too, he sees as an opportunity because Japan is essentially close to where they can get into Russia through either, you know, China, the Koreas, yeah. that kind of area. They've already they had these op- conflicts with Russia before. Exactly. And they had won. It yeah. was a, he, he passed it off because here's the thing. This guy's preaching pure German Aryan blood, all that kind of shit. And now he's, he's talked so much shit about like the subhumans that are not Germans. Now he's done this with Japan and he's like, no, the Japanese are just like the German people, like a strong storied history and like a, uh, nationalistic sense of pride and they've never lost a, a war in like 3,000 years. Their empire's never lost. So he's using this basically to say, well, I can at least pull some shit from Russia when they invade that way and then, you know, it'll be easier for me to take over my territory in Russia. So he's just using these as pawns. Yeah. He, he has no intention of, you know, if they want to keep a piece of land over there that's not going to bother him, maybe he'll have to do that later, but he understands that these are just tools for him to use. Well, and this makes Mussolini so jealous. Mm-hmm. Mussolini is not a real big he fan. Used to be the bell the ball, and now there's this new fancy new toy. Yeah, it, it sort of turns him off to the point where he doesn't sign into the alliance with Japan for a ways after that. I I don't know if it's bitterness. Yeah, like you say, maybe he's not the new kid on the block anymore, so he's kind of taking some umbrage with that. But it just it's. So such a all these steps are so predetermined like you said pointing all that stuff out with just how strategically important japan was finding other places to have kind of those same feelings that nationalism and all that kind of stuff i don't think they were a a uh they didn't have a dictator mm-hmm but they kind of had enough in common toward the japanese like yeah we can the do japanese it. had the emperor Is that a dictator? Oh, he's the god. Okay, so yeah. He's literally their god. Remember we were talking about during Korea, how the reason that like Douglas, when he, you know, took the picture of them, Uh he wanted to portray him as a man. That's right. But he was literally, they couldn't take him out. He was their figurehead and god. That's why they had to leave him in. So yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, Hitler had to look at that and be like, oh, I want to be that guy. Could like, be. Yeah, like he, he was building himself toward would that. would have seen himself that way. Well, on the 12th of March, he finally makes his first big military-type move, and he basically rolls the 8th Army of the German Wehrmacht across the border into Austria, and they're basically just greeted like heroes. Now, here's the thing. I mean, you kind of talked about this, is during a lot of these like documentaries that you see, all of the footage that has actually survived is stuff that was confiscated from the Nazis at the end of the war. Yeah. So whenever you see these videos of the Nazis rolling into these areas, these are areas both close to the German border that have German people and everything like that. Like I said, the whole Austria thing, when it got split up, it, you know, those yeah, people, was- a lot of them kind of felt like they'd lost so much of their land. The people that were there near the border were more likely to be supportive of the Germans coming in and taking over. So it's not like you're driving all the way through the fucking country and you're getting fucking flags waved at you and cheers and everything like that. They're being selective in what they're showing. So when it's saying they drove in there to, you know, cheering crowds and flowers and Nazi flags and everything, that was just the area that they came into that was friendly (laughs) to them. And because of that, 
they used that as an excuse to be like, see, see, we're welcome here. And Hitler always used this fucking excuse when it came to the world stage to justify his invasions. He would always be like, we've heard reports that German citizens or like German born peoples are being persecuted in Austria. We need to go into, I'm going in to help my German people. And he would go in and instead of just being like, oh, I've helped the German people near the border. He's like, nope, now that I'm here we're just going to go ahead and take over and we're going to merge Austria back into the third Reich. How and, can I trust Austria if they treated them so poorly before I must take them over. So that doesn't happen again. And they were already in the country at that point. And so basically it was a situation where Austria or the current government in Austria basically signed over the unification of Austria and Germany and made it official. And so that was just something that they were forced into doing. Yeah. The way he it's has be portrayed first- by them. He has his first victory without firing a shot. Yeah. That's a good start for him to really It's also a way. surprise. It wasn't like, hey, we're, yeah. you know, but they, they came in. They're like, look, we've got the support of the people. At that point, the Austrian government's like, I can't get all my fucking troops together and all this kind of shit. I'm not going to lead my people into war, so I guess we're just going to have to fucking capitulate. And now I guess we're part of the, the Third Reich. Yeah, you would just be leading your people into slaughter at that point. So you just you don't have an option. Well, now you now, you know, Hitler has crossed off that fucking thing off of his bucket list of uniting back the Austrian people with the greater, you know, German Empire, German Reich that, you know, he did speeches about like that being the greatest moment of his life. You would think, okay, you that was your plan to do that. So you're going to stop now. Right. (laughs) Well, no, it was so easy to fucking take over this country. You know what? I actually think over in Czechoslovakia, there's a bunch of ethnic German, and what was it? The Sudetenlands. In the Sudetenlands, which was near the German border, I think, of Czechoslovakia. And he's like, oh, you're never going to, you know, the League of Nations was like, hey, what the fuck are you doing in Austria? That's all it was, is asking questions. Like, hey, can you explain why you're in Austria? And he's like, well, the German people were here being persecuted here. So I came in to, to help them and, you know, to establish, there might've been an uprising. We were helping to go ahead and control that. They wanted us there. Like, I, okay, we might have to investigate this. And he looks at Czechoslovakia. He's like, well, shit, that worked before. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, guess what? You guys are never going to guess. There's people, ethnic Germans in the Sudetenlands who are being persecuted by essentially the Czechoslovakian government and we need to go in there and save them. We don't have time for the League of Nations to step in. I'm already, I'm, I'm on my way already. And so he has his eyes on Czechoslovakia, which at this point, there's no excuse for that. He's just looking for these pockets of German people as an excuse. It's like, why was it never be like, hey, if you want them to live there, go fucking help them move there. Yeah. If you want them, yeah, like you don't just get the land that they're fucking on. This was the land that was taken from you for losing the fucking the last war. You can give these people German citizenship and just move them into your country. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take over where they are. You can just take them back if you think they're being persecuted. But ultimately, that's just not the plan. That's not the Hitler's radar wasn't just Austria and it's not just Czechoslovakia. And now he turns his eyes to that that place he signed the non-aggression pact with. The place that he I think he's had his eye on the most part for the entire time. And this is going to be essentially this move is going to finally fucking be the move too many. Yeah. That is going to actually officially lead us into world war two. Yeah. And, um, for all of you that have stuck with us, not only into world war two, but into next week's episode. Hell yeah. All right, guys. Well, we will see you next week. And, uh, 
Thanks for listening. Peace. Oh, by the way, before we end, read, rate, review. Subscribe. Do all that good stuff. Five stars. We love it, guys. Keep sending your suggestions in. Hope you like the episodes. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.